Hat gesagt, ich einen Tag, muss ja das da Sometimes we do the others. Yeah, I, I, I see it in you. I um, found that uh, following a principle out with Lord for quite a while, just uh, something called covenant relationships, my term, I like is divine connections. And uh, a while back, I've been in ministry well, for quite a long time, but uh, a number of years back I decided and requested to the Lord if we could make a radical shift. I just got tired of doing ministry the way most people do it, you know. Um, and by that I mean just traveling somewhere and doing a planned meeting and getting up and speaking and then, uh, you know, you hug everybody's neck and you go to the next place. And I just asked, I just told Lord, I just don't think I can do that anymore. And I wanted to have much more of a life that was just led by the Spirit. Um, I like a little bit of things that are planned out, but I don't like to be the one that always plans it out. But the Lord just asked me to enter into His rest, and uh, I thought I knew what that meant. A year later, I was still trying to figure out what that was. <clears throat> but I decided a while back just to to hear God and where He wanted me to go and to let Him plan it all out, what He wanted to do. I just want you to know, Gary and I didn't know each other at all until just a few days ago. Um, and even the guy that introduced us, I haven't met yet. <laughs> so, what I found is that when the Lord gives me a divine connection, somebody that He's really put in my life and planned and purposed them to be in there, and when you start, it's kind of like me, my wife. I, I met her. Obviously, I figured she was one of my divine connections. You know. But as we came together, uh, our lives radically changed because I had to then begin to introduce her to everything God was doing in my life and everybody that I was already a part of. And she did the same thing. And so I spilled over into her life. She spilled over in mine. Not just because we're married, but, but everyone that we were already um, graced towards. Yeah. And so I, that's what brought me here. Now, what's interesting, why I wanted, I'm not, that's not the subject directly tonight, but what I wanted to preclude that with is I came to Santa Monica for the first time in 1990, first time in my life. And I stood on the beach here, and the Lord showed me something that I didn't know who to say it to. You know, what he showed me was that Santa Monica was a gate in the West, spiritual gate, uh, that there was something extremely significant about this city that had the capacity and capability to affect the whole nation and nations. And uh, what I saw was a double-door gate. Uh, one was Santa Monica and one was Venice Beach. And they looked totally different on the outside. But they're like two intricately designed doors that work together. And right now, uh, in 1990, 
what I saw was a defilement at both of those gates. You know, like an altar that was supposed to be holy, but it had been defiled. And so instead of it being righteousness coming out of there and going to the nations, it was spewing out a defilement that was going to the nations. And I, I thought, I, it was on the surface, I said, Lord, these two places don't look like they're the same. They... They're different cities. There's actually a, a break, a, a city-type break between them. And the Lord just said they function together. They're synergistic. Um, one is defiling the artists, the creative people. The, uh, it's kind of that bohemian thing you see at Venice Beach. And the other is defiling the business and the marketplace. And when you combine Hollywood and some of that stuff, it's real easy to see that these two things come together in that industry specifically. So a lot of the wealth that goes into the production at Hollywood comes through Santa Monica. And a lot of the artists that create things for the territory come either out of a lifestyle or or, uh, what you see in Venice Beach is somewhat of uh, the kind of heart that just expresses itself in a very creative artistic way and uh, I don't mean to sound negative I don't mean that when I saw that as a defilement I'm not saying something negative towards you I'm just saying that's what's there it's not what's supposed to be there and uh, so when God planned these things I think that before the foundations of the earth the Lord planned this spot and he had it planned for his redemptive purpose. And somehow along the way, cities end up there. And people end up there. And if we come into sync and alignment with what God's redemptive purpose is, then what his spoken word was, what his heart towards that particular spot is, starts to resonate out of who's he, who he has sent there. So if you got a door... There should be somebody at the door. If you've got a significant spot that God has designed, he's not going to leave it without some of his kids there. Uh, It's not a mystery. It's not just a place on the earth that by itself is fully functional. has to have those that he created on the earth to steward the earth have to come in alignment with the spot. So we see Adam... uh, being created out of the ground and life breathed into him and then he is assigned to a particular area of the earth. Here's my garden. Tend it, dress it, and multiply. You could say that in that garden then, whatever the boundaries were, we don't know how big it was, then Adam and Eve were the gatekeepers of the garden. Because they were given a stewardship by God of a certain area, a responsibility to tend it, to dress it, and to multiply within it. So their creative gifts, their anointings, everything God wanted in purpose for them was designed to come to full measure of fulfillment within that particular area. And then he gave them a simple instruction. Here's a tree of life. Here's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Everything else 
you're free to eat and enjoy and make yourselves as happy as you can, and I'm going to be here. And so we see in the scriptures, God Himself is walking in the garden with them. They they have full access to Him. So when our uh, redemptive purpose in our creation as individuals is right, when the place is without defilement, then God's presence is a part of it. It's very simple. And as long as we steward over that with the instructions that He gives, we can maintain the presence and we can maintain the spot and we can multiply it. And fill the earth with His glory. That's His desire. Of course, we know the rest of the story. They did not follow the instruction. And therefore, the punishment for that was death. It wasn't immediate death, but He removed them from His presence. And He drove them out of the garden. And He placed an angel with a flaming sword at the gate so they couldn't get back in. We don't, to this day, don't even know where that was in the earth. So when you look at how the men have multiplied throughout the earth and how significant places have come up, we built cities. Um, I view every city now as a potential Garden of Eden, a place where God wants to come so near to everyone there and where we can get back to that kind of simplicity, just enjoy life, Eat the fruit. Don't eat the part I tell you not to, but eat the rest. Enjoy it. And uh, walk with me. Talk with me. And multiply. But most people are totally out of sync with their own gifting. And then they're totally out of sync sometimes with where they belong on the earth. So we kind of go to and fro a lot of times trying to figure out where we fit. And uh, I I just tell you that if if you're in this city, you've been here for a while, or if you were born in this area, then it's very likely that you really are here because God wants you here. Because it's not the kind of city with the level of defilement and the level of spiritual uh, condition that it's in where if you really haven't been sent here, I don't think you're going to last very long. Does that make sense? (laughs) And it takes an endurance. It takes a level of integrity. It takes a steadfastness to just know that God wants you somewhere. But there's always a struggle sometimes with everything that's out of order, there's a struggle to figure out how do we fix it? Now, you know, I'm going to get into the scriptures we're going to talk about. Mainly the main subject we want to talk about tonight is is gatekeeping or gates or doors. It's a lot of people use the different terms. They're all scriptural terms. Uh, But I want you to look at the, the first principle of gatekeeping is to understand that God designed the earth with a particular blueprint. He created every significant spot on it. A lot of the occult groups, a lot of the satanic groups, the narrators, sometimes we see some of those folks have real sensitivity to certain spots. 
Why is that? It's because there really is something significant about those thoughts. And people that are sensitive in the spirit are drawn to them. But what what our enemy wants to do is to defile those spots and what God wants to do is bring redemption and restoration to his purpose to those places. So the war is on. If you think about the water, California can't exist without water. So you could say one of the most significant spots would be where the water's source out of the rock. You know. So the whole valley can't survive and be a breadbasket to the world if there's not a source of water coming out of the rock somewhere that's directed this direction. So if you look at that spot where the water comes out of the rocks as a gate of life, if it's not working, what happens to everything we want to grow in the valley? It dries up. We can't survive it. So a lot of the condition of our cities, a lot of the condition of our households, a lot of the things that are going on in our lives that we're struggling with, it may be because there's something significant on the earth and somebody that has a a job to do at that spot has dammed it up, crudded it up, defiled it up, and it's it's not functional, and therefore we can't be fruitful in some area God wants. Does that make sense? So God's unlocking this stuff partly by revelation, partly by just work, just activity. We've got we to get back to doing things according to his plan and design. We frankly have been doing church for quite a long time in a way that has not been very functional. You know? I don't know, I hope, I, I, I'm not saying that about you guys in particular, but across the country, I'm seeing a lot of dysfunction in God's house. I don't think it's because we're so messed up because we don't want him. I think it's because we just haven't figured out some of his ways yet. So if I don't know how to walk and nobody ever taught me how to walk, then I'm going to look pretty dysfunctional in a room with everybody else that knows how to walk. (laughs) I'm crawling around even though I might be really able to get up. Because nobody taught me how to do that. So we, we have a breakdown somewhere in the body of Christ where a lot of God's kids have not learned his ways and therefore aren't able to pass on to the next generation how to do some of the things God's way. So we might be preaching the gospel. We might be doing some things that we know are right and many of us are hearing things from God and trying to do what he's telling us. But there's a significant, really interesting scripture from one of the first uh, guys that I, I'm not going to get into all the details of the scripture, but Moses, for instance, is told that he is going to be a deliverer. And he comes into the nation as a prophet. He comes with prophecy. Uh, he comes with this massive level of warfare to try to keep him from even being born. And then... For a long time in his life, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. God had to reveal it to him. He's got to get out of Egypt and off in the desert before he really finds out from the face-to-face with God what he's got to do to fulfill the prophecy. So where did he go? When he went to the desert, where did he go? He found the Mount of God, a place where God was sitting, 
a place where there was a burning bush, a significant spot, you know, a gate to the heavens, like a portal that was open and God was near. And when he came near it, his life was totally, absolutely revolutionized. And then he goes from the sending of that spot back to Egypt and delivers the nation. Brings them back to the same place again. It's just a little story, but if you look at him as a deliverer, he could not have fulfilled his job if he hadn't got to this certain place where he could get a face-to-face with God. Now, I, I think that this kind of city has that type of anointing but it's been so blocked up. No. Um, Gary thinks it's a gift of mercy city. I, I like that term. It means that, you know, you look at the city, it's pretty tolerable of a lot of things. That's kind of a mercy heart. But the gift of mercy can be corrupted very easily because it is so tolerant of everything. You know, So... What are we supposed to do? We need truth and mercy. If we don't have God's truth, if we don't understand how he wants us to function with love, and we, we may replace love for tolerance. And then we just don't ever tell anybody the truth. We just let them stay like they are. And we embrace anything and everything instead of bringing a separation of what's precious from what's vile and loving unconditionally, but still helping separate what's precious from what's vile. And this city, if it learns to do that, can be absolutely phenomenally transformed. So, I want to show you some scriptures on gatekeeping. Uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit, just uh, several terms. You probably already understand some of these. But there are gatekeepers. There are spiritual gates, which are places. And then there is the work. What is the function of those gates? What, what do we do? Just because God has prophesied to you you're a gatekeeper, or just because he's told you you live in a city that's a significant gate, uh, what are we supposed to do about it? It's one thing to, to hear a prophecy like that. It's another to know your city has some significance, but how do we make it fully functional? So, I, I don't know everything, but I want to tell you a little bit about some of what I've figured out along the way. But this one principle that I started with that I call divine connections. If you don't understand your divine connections, meaning who did God put in your life and who's just an acquaintance, then if you have this gatekeeping anointing, and if you have a work by God to do in a gate city, you're going to have great frustration if you don't first figure out who the divine connections are. Why is that? Because... A gatekeeper has a specific assignment as a specific spot. Often God won't let them get very far from that spot. And you can go to a meeting somewhere, you can go on vacation once in a while, but your assignment, I sent you there, he's going to keep you there very often. So many times throughout your life. And so they have to first come into a place where they are married to the land. Y'all know what that means? It means that you've embraced the place the same way you would embrace a wife or a spouse. And there's a real difference in a person's heart that loves where he lives 
than there is to somebody that's just there because he has a job or just there because that's where my daddy owns a house and now it's my home or whatever. But I, you know, every time something gets a little rough, you're ready to vacate the place and go somewhere else. It's interesting to me that Hollywood, either you're all the way in or you're all the way out, and how many people that have become well-known in that career have had to really work at just surviving until they finally got their break. Something held them here. <coughs> so they'll do anything. They'll live on the streets. They'll work at a restaurant. They'll, they'll do anything just to keep their time free as possible to go to the casting call or whatever. It's a, it's a natural reflection of the kind of person, the kind of tenacity, the kind of, uh, I'm just not going to give up. I'm just not going to give up. I'm just not going to give up, you know, until I get a breakthrough because I've got to be here for some reason. And that is generally one of the characteristics that you find in gatekeepers. Is they don't always like the spot that they're at when they get there. Or they might have been born and want to go somewhere else. Or somewhere along the way, God just keeps them there. And keeps them there. Keeps them there. And somewhere along the way, you kind of break and throw your hands up and say, whatever you want, God will do. And you come to a place where he starts trying to get you to open your heart so you can marry the land. Native Americans, uh, my brother here, we were talking a little bit this afternoon, uh, they often get that. You know? And if you are married to the land and then you're extracted from it or, or you're taken away from it for a long time, it, it, it can actually affect your health, it can affect your joy, it can begin to affect your spirit, your peace, because there's something that you long for at that spot that that's where you're satisfied with. Uh, I can only be gone about two weeks when I'm traveling. I generally bring my wife with me, but if I'm gone about two weeks and I don't have my wife with me, I start looking and acting a little different. Because <laughs> I long for her. You know, that's the result of being married and being absolutely head over heels in love. You know. If we can get that kind of love for the land, not just because we're ecologists, uh, but because we understand God's heart, then you start understanding gatekeeping a little better. The other thing is this divine connection. At the gate, there's supposed to be activity. So the authority of a gatekeeper is to open the door or shut the door. And it is an authority job. God gives you authority to open the door or shut the door. To do that well, you've got to have strength and stability surrounding you. So, you know, look at this door. It swings on hinges. Nice door. But it swings on hinges. And if it was up here, there was no hinges. There wasn't a pin in place. If there was a framework all around it, it wouldn't function very long before it'd be on the ground. So if you think about the divine connections in your life, if you're a doorkeeper or if you're a gatekeeper, you're the same thing. If you don't have this divine connection with the person that's supposed to be on your right hand, and if you don't have something under your feet that's foundational that allows that thing to be in place, and if you don't have something that keeps it squared and in place so that any shift you're moving around the building doesn't affect it, 
at, at some point you either fall over or you become dysfunctional. Nobody can get in and out. It won't open or it won't shut. And if you look at that as a person now, if God says, I need this door to be functional for me, and I need it to stay shut to the entrance of the human door, then without this other step, it's not going to function. But you, got, you need to really assess who God put in your life. Because if you don't understand the relationships that were orchestrated by humans, you become dysfunctional real fast. And everybody that I've ever served with some of the stuff on divine connecting, if you if you miss the relationships that God has ordained for your life, then there's going to be some area of your life that God needs you to change or needs you to grow up in, and He needs to impart to that. And He's designed us so that you can't get it all on your own. I gotta have something in me that only you can give me. And it's, sometimes it's what you teach me, sometimes it's impartation, but I can't get to hear and look like Jesus and act like Jesus and talk like Jesus without the other parts of the body supplying something to me. So what makes life for the body of Christ is when we first figure out who God has connected us with. And now we're not just gathering in a room together and calling it church, but we're really assembling and every piece becomes a joint of supply. When that starts happening to someone who has a spiritual gatekeeping authority, all of a sudden they, they begin to kind of become functional. And then the authority of that uh, job suddenly can start seeing what's going on in the territory and it gets grace, anointing, insight, revelation, and power with God to begin to remove the defilement. This city's pretty dysfunctional in a lot of ways. So I would submit to you that if there are gatekeepers here, it very likely is a reflection of them. Okay. Here's the first principle of gatekeepers. Whatever you allow in your own heart, God allows in the city. That's not. You know, now I, when, when God said that to me, I went up <laughs> Because I looked at my city where I was assigned at that time, and I'm going, man, uh, there's a lot of things that are over And there's a lot of stuff that no matter what the churches here have been doing, we just don't seem to be changed. And I just said, well, whatever you allow in your heart, I allow in the city. I said, well, Lord, I don't get that because, uh, you know, there's, there's a... You know, three square miles, homosexual population in my city, that kind of stuff. Y'all, y'all have seen that out here, I know. There's another area where there's extreme poverty, and no matter how much money the city pours into that area, it's always going to stay in poverty. There's a few places where nothing will grow, and we don't know why they won't, there's nothing will grow there, but the rest of the state's pretty cool, and we'll grow on the same thing. Uh, there's things that I, I can drive through my community and I can say, there's something wrong with this spot, there's something wrong with this spot, there's something wrong with this spot. And then there's a lot of great things too, so I'm not saying that it's just always bad, but I, I didn't want that responsibility. I mean, I was sitting there in Jesus' face arguing with him. I wasn't cussing him good. <laughs> I wasn't arguing with him. So I said, I, I don't get that. How can it be um, 
my responsibility. I, I'm not doing those things. And the Lord said, yes, you are. <laughs> but you're not doing them like some people in the world are doing. You might be harboring it in your heart. You might be doing it with restraint. Think about pornography. Pornography. Maybe I just see the picture and I'm frequent. Not like I'm hanging out there. But I'm restraining myself and yet I've not made a covenant of God over my eyes and circumcised my heart. No. It's not quite that. So my restraint still opens up to something like that. And I let it in my heart and it gets just a little root. Just a little thing there. And, and it's not consuming me. It's not, you know, to me I'm not defiled by it. It's just like, well, everybody's got that. Everybody's got that. But the Word says, make a covenant with your eyes. You know, what's that mean? It means a covenant is not an agreement between me and another person. A covenant is an agreement between you, another entity, and God named and both in his presence as a part of it. It's a signature with three things on it. God, you, and whoever the other part is. So make a covenant with your eyes, me. I'm going to tell my eyes, you're going to see what God will see. And you're commanded by this agreement that we're making that you will not turn to the right or to the left, that you'll shut your eyes to anything that would be unholy. And I'm going to invoke God's name to make sure that that's carried out. <laughs> so what happens? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I do. Next time the pictures flash up or something, you know, the lady walks by and half dress half off and that stuff, you're not going to be distracted in your spirit because something grips you in your spirit first. God comes immediately to invoke his covenant. His presence comes near at the moment that you could have been tripped up. So the word says temptation comes because of the lust of your heart. It means you're not tempted unless there's something in there. Well, that doesn't mean you're going to sin. But there's something in there. You know, or you wouldn't be able to call that a temptation. Most people deal with these issues of the heart after they become a problem. Instead of going to God, like David did, and here's David, the doorkeeper, here's what he says. Oh God, show me my heart. Don't hide from me the transgressions. Show me my iniquities. Forgive me of my sins and my trespasses. Now those are different things. An iniquity is when sin becomes very prevalent in you. Transgression is when you're doing something wrong and you don't even know what you're doing. You're violating one of God's ways or one of God's principles and you're not even aware that you did something. So David's saying... Don't wait for me to get into this mess. Show me what's not right in me so that I can deal with it before it becomes a temptation. If a gatekeeper does that, then God starts going after their heart with tremendous intensity. 
Because you don't understand that your weaknesses, your DNA, the things that are in you that are just normal for everyday people, but we're all, we all got to deal with stuff. So this is not a message about you doing something wrong. It's just saying that the stuff that you normally got to deal with, it, there is a way to deal with it before it becomes a massive problem in your life. And if you're a gatekeeper and you will submit your heart to God like that, he starts cleaning you up because he understands how to get something in you and then it absolutely imparts to the community. So here I am looking at this area of the city, in Oklahoma City, that's got three square miles of, of just this horrible defilement going on. And I ask the Lord a question, is that in me? No. I, I, I never felt like I had any homosexual tendencies. But, you know, that's not necessarily what the root of that sin is. The root of that sin is usually molestation. Not always, but usually. So in Oklahoma City, we have this horrible thing in the roots of our state. We have this massive history of broken covenants. And not only sexual molestation, but we have molested whole people groups. We've removed them from what they were supposed to be. We've oppressed them. Uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma has 39 sovereign nations that were ripped from the land that they loved and they were married to and forced to live there. That's not an easy thing. And, and we're still dealing with the massive heart issues that come from generations of people that that happened a long time ago and they're still dealing with it. You know why they're still dealing with it? It's in their DNA. It's not just a sin that happened today. It's a sin that happened to their forefathers, but it's never been repented for. It's never been dealt with properly. So it's in their DNA. They're locked up. And that imparts the law. So I'm looking at this area of my city that's very defiled, and I'm sitting there going, Lord, I don't want to talk. I mean, I, I don't want to deal with it. I, I, I just feel totally taken back at the thought that God would say to me, the root of this might be in you. I don't necessarily, he didn't say, you're responsible for why this looks like that. He just said, you've got to understand the responsibility of being a gay. And you've got to be willing to listen to me about areas of your heart that you may not know. Because I haven't sinned like that, does that mean it isn't potentially possible for me to? God knows me better than I do. So I look at this thing, and I'm sitting back, and I'm just looking at this city, and, and almost no church was fruitful there. Almost nothing, any, any evangelistic activity was fruitful there. In fact, almost, it was almost an animosity and a hatred towards Christianity coming out of that three square miles. So I went to one of the top person, one of the top guys that was um, well-known in that neighborhood, the guy that owned the gay news and I asked him this question. I said, has there ever been a minister in this city that has come to this area of the community with a heart that really looked Christ-like to you? And he said, what do you mean? What would be Christ-like? And I said, well, unconditional love, righteousness. I'm not saying that I'm going to tell you that you're not doing some things wrong, but I'm telling you that I, I should be able to love you anyway. Do they come preaching to you? 
or they come with an answer to help you with the things that you can't fix in your own life. And he said, most of the people that I know in this community hate preachers. They hate preachers. And I said, why? He said, well, I can name dozens of them that what happened to them as a child came from the church. And I knew what he was talking about. So, you know, here I had been most of my life looking at that area, looking at that. One time, a gay guy pinched me on the back, and I thought I was going to knock him down the stairs. <laughs> you know, I was just like, huh. I felt the fire. That's not Christ-like. I don't know who damaged him. No. So here I am, maybe the only man of God that he'll ever run across, and he doesn't know how to be anything but what he is. Because I found out later at eight years old, he was molested by a preacher. Someone damaged him. No. That opportunity, what he did to me, I almost ruined my Christ-like position. You understand? And it was, it was really easy. I mean, everything in me said, slap him silly. <laughs> you know, just because that it was a reaction that comes out of a religiosity instead of a Christ-like. My religious, carnal religion crap made me want to slap the guy instead of turn and say, Who did that to you? So after that little thing, I went to prayer and I said, All right, God, I take responsibility. I don't understand it because I don't feel like I'm guilty of the sins that you're telling me are out there blatantly in my community. I don't get this. I've not sinned that way that I know of. But I take responsibility. Whatever is in me may be imparted to the city, so I repent. Just show me my transgressions. Show me my iniquities. Don't hide these things from me. And the Lord then gave me an address. Well, what is that? I'm not praying about me. He gives me an address. I drive to that address, and it's no church built in the 20s. Only it's not a church at the time I went there. It was one of the worst nightclubs in my community. I'm sitting there in the parking lot going, how did this thing that, has, that was once a church get to the place where it's a nightclub? I had known about it, although I didn't recognize the address, I knew the street, but I, I, I just had driven by it many, many times, and it had never really dawned on me that this spot was not what it was supposed to be. Well, it was one of the first churches established in that part of the city, and it's a gay. Spirit of gay. But the righteous, giving birth to it, creating something on that spot. They bought land, God told them to buy the land, God told them to dedicate it to Him, and they built something for a community of believers to begin to function together. And for 1929 to 1960, they were doing very well as a church. And they were touching the neighborhood in a very redemptive way. And then, the first molestation
Western court case in Oklahoma City happened there. <clears throat> Only instead of it being just a preacher who molested a child, several children, and then that's found out and guy goes to court and ends up in jail. It went like this. He did it. Everyone found out about it. His denomination didn't want it to make public news, so they paid off the newspaper. They bought off the judge. They bought off the DA. And they hid it. Sent him to another state. Gave him another pastor. And he did it again. Sent him to another state. And he did it again. And he finally died with this trail of defilement in multiple states. Guess where some of those cities were? Santa Monica, San Francisco, Houston, Texas. You look at the homosexual population of those cities, it's off the chart. So here's a righteous man, one born for the kingdom, one dedicated to be a man of God, a preacher with a gatekeeping anointing. He doesn't know how to get that out of his life, so he's in the pulpit one minute, and he's in a little boy's path the next. I hope that doesn't fit you, but it's reality. It's one thing for a sin to just be a sin, and, and we all got something that needs to be corrected, but when it goes to that kind of level where it gets linked with an injustice, that's what sets up an iniquity in the land. So you got just not just one man that's supposed to be righteous that defiled the child. You have a whole denomination that has hundreds of churches across America that made a choice not to deal with it with God's heart, not to deal with it with justice, not to deal with it with righteousness. But instead to lie and to cover up and to bribe and do anything to keep them from being embarrassed because of it. And the audacity of dealing with it like that is one thing. But then to just give the guy license to go somewhere else as if nothing was wrong. And let him repeat it again and again and again. That kind of denomination, for me, needs some massive correction. And so, suddenly I realized that because I had taken this place where I said to the Lord, I'm willing to take responsibility even though I can't see it in me. That's a true repentance. You see this throughout the scripture. Nehemiah does. Nehemiah. Oh God, forgive our forefathers and forgive us for we have sinned. He was not guilty of the things that he was repenting for. David. Oh God, forgive us for we have sinned. He's not guilty of the things that Saul did. He's not guilty of the stuff that happened. Jeremiah, oh God, he prays for this, the nation as if he's guilty, as if he's been judged. And yet he was the only prophet standing in the land at that moment that was not defiled by the things that God was judging to send them into captivity. It's taking responsibility in a way we've not comprehended. Because most people that love God, they will repent for their own sins, but we've not figured out yet that sometimes he wants us to repent for us. That's authority. Here's what it means. My repentance shuts the door. It's like having keys. 
This is one of the keys. I'm going to act like God. I'm going to pray like God. I'm going to be like Jesus. And when I do that, it may not be that God, and sometimes God will show you something you didn't know that was in there, and other times if you take that kind of profile as a gatekeeper, he'll then download to you what you need to know that gives the territory. He can't give it to someone that doesn't have his heart. That makes sense? If he gave you the revelation of what to fix and you didn't have his heart, what would you do with it? Just mess it up. <laughs> or fall short. Or not handle it exactly right. And then we might end up in a bigger mess. <laughs> so he's got to get us to the place where we have his heart. Then he gives us the revelation of what to do. And then we begin to act out in accordance with his will. And all of a sudden, his grace, his authority, his uh, redemptive purpose begins to come back into alignment with what it wants. So I go to the church. I stand on the parking lot. Take a few intercessors. We're looking at it. We're talking about what happened. I got the, the history from a DA that was currently our DA in the state. He dug out the, uh, the old court case, found where it had been. I couldn't have got those records because they were off the books. He had to go find something. It took some work. It took a combination of the body of Christ unlocking, uncovering something that had been hidden. Once we had the evidence, once we had the mystery uncovered, then I said, who's going to go talk to the leaders of that denomination? And what do we say? And I said, you do it. You've got the keys. Well, I don't like that kind of conversation, but I'm sitting there going, what am I going to say? So, I knock, 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 ask for a meeting, and I said, we got an issue I want to talk about. Uh, here's the address. Tell me about it. I go, well, what do you mean? What do you want to know? I said, tell me about the history of that house, that church. It used to, it was built by you. I said, yeah, that's good. It's built by us, and we sold it back in 1960. Why? Oh, we can't talk about it. Because they had signed legal documents that said they wouldn't talk about it. If they, if they bring it up now, they might end up with a lawsuit. And everybody knows, can't have that. <laughs> We're more scared of a lawsuit than we are of heaven's judgment sometimes. Yeah. And so I just simply said to him, I said, well, I've got to give you a word that's from the Lord. And I wish I didn't have to be here, but here's what you need to hear. If you will not deal with this case according to what God wants, your entire denomination is about to come to you. Because you're defiling the land and God is finally sitting on it. Well, we can't deal with it. If we, if we try to deal with it, let's say uh, we're violating our court documents. I said, what court documents? You file them up. You're not violating anything except the agreement you signed with the kids that were molested. And if that's never brought to light, they may never get healed. I mean, you can't be healed of something. Confess your fault one to another that you may be healed. Sometimes if it doesn't come to light, we can't get healed. So they're wanting to cover up something is keeping someone that God loves that's now a mess 
from being healed. It's absolutely demonic in spirit, right? So uh, they didn't like the meeting. It didn't go that well. But they said, uh, well, we'll talk about it. We'll have a little meeting here and we'll talk about it. I said, uh, do you know the guy that owns it today? And they said, well, yeah. Uh, you know, we know we sold it to him. So they said, that, that's part of our agreement. Finally, <coughs> that's part of our agreement. We really probably shouldn't talk about it until we have a meeting. So I just went to the court records, found out who owned it, and it was one of the most crooked attorneys in my city. He's a mafia guy. <laughs> He's not the kind of guy you want to go have lunch with. Unless you're in trouble, then you can change that. And I'm thinking, here's a place that some group of people that love Jesus dedicated this land and built this building with their tithes and their offerings and their sacrifice to do something good for the kingdom of God. How did it get this kind of mess? What do we have to do to fix it? And so I go see the attorney. He's not saved. He's, a, he's unregenerate in a lot of ways. And he's crooked. That's the dedication of what I'm accusing him of. Everybody in town kind of knows it. I knock on his door, ask for an appointment. I said, I want to talk to you about this address. He says, oh, okay, yeah, I own that building. What do you want to talk about? I said, why is it a nightclub? <clears throat> he said, well, because I'm making money. That's a nightclub. Now, I'd also found out one other thing that some of the witches in my city were paying him to rent the basement. And they're doing rituals in the basement of this place. While he's letting the nightclub just function with another set of managers, and it's one of the key places for the drug activity and trafficking going on in local city. So here I am going, this is a really big problem. It's a spiritual problem, not just a location problem. And this guy's not that spiritual. He's just collecting rent. He don't care who's paying the rent. So I said, do you understand what they're doing down there in the basement? I mean, they're agreeing for this. He said, no, I don't need this. That is annual practice. So I said, well, <clears throat> do you understand anything about God at all? He said, well, I believe in God, but I'm not a Christian. I said, what do you believe about God? So well, I believe that he created us, you know. I don't understand all that, but, you know, I'm kind of stupid if you don't believe it's a God. I said, all right, that's good. How would you like to know him? He said, well, I don't know. I'm ready for that. There's a lot of things in my life I have. <laughs> I said, do you believe that God can bless you? He said, yeah, I've heard that. I said, let me explain to you what a blessing is. When God blesses somebody, he causes everything they were born and created to do to become successful and fruitful. In fact, it can't come to the place where everything they put their hands to prosper. How would you like to have that? He's like, well, that sounds pretty good. So I said, well, I'm going to tell you a little story about your building. And if you're willing to, I'd like to help you get in the place where you can come under the blessing of God instead of the judgment. He said, all right, I'm listening. And here's a man that doesn't know Jesus, that's unregenerate, that's pretty crippled. And when he heard 
that this is a spot that's a spiritual gate, and I explained to him what a gate is, just like creation. And then at that spot, a minister messed up kid, covered that up, they sold it, and that's the only reason he's the only one. Then he, very chokingly, not totally weeping, but chokingly, said, my God, my God, well, how can I help fix that? And I sat there and looked at the contrast of that. Here's a guy that doesn't know Jesus. And here's a whole group of men that have hundreds of churches that they're responsible for across the country. And they don't want to deal with it, and this guy is willing to. And I think, what is wrong with that? Yeah. I don't get it. I, I now understand why sometimes Christians are always in a mess and the world is not <coughs> always as bad as the you know, God sometimes shows favor to the righteous and the unrighteous. And sometimes I think what we're calling unrighteous is, is a totally wrong definition. And I hope you understand what I just said. Sometimes what we have called holy is really horribly out of touch with God. And some because it's just religious. Sometimes what we have called sin is just somebody that hasn't met him yet. And in their heart, they may be a lot closer to him than a lot of us. They just haven't been in face to face. So I said, we got to get rid of the witches. Uh, you know, I don't know how to run them out of town, but we can at least, can we at least get them out of the building. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, they're paying the rent. I said, do you have the authority to take that back and the lease if they don't have a lease they just pay another month. I said, can you tell them that you don't want that anymore? He said, yeah, but you know, it's money. I said, how much are you making off the club? He said, well, you know, really, I'm not making that much off the club. For some reason, every time I get a business going in there and it looks like I'm going to get paid a whole lot of money, they only last about six months. And then they fail, and I end up with three or four months that I don't get paid for, and then it takes me another seven, eight months before I find another group to take it over. And it's been through that cycle for years. I really had never made money off that building like I thought. I said, maybe it's because it was given to God a long time ago and still belongs to him. I said, how would you like to make a lot of money? He said, well, you got my attention. I said, I know a pastor that's looking for a church. He knows a little bit about gatekeeping. And he would know how to clean that place up and get it back into the, place, into the place that God wants it. And you can make some money out of it. He says, what I need to do? I said, you need to sell it to my friend. And he'll bring a congregation and then he'll clean up the defilement. He'll pray over it, rededicate it. And then I'm going to have him and everyone that you'll allow come into this office and we're going to lay hands on you and we're going to ask God's favor and blessing to come down upon your head and give you every desire you have in life. But there's just one catch. He said, what's the case? I said, well, I'm going to pray for you this scripture. It's Numbers chapter 6. It says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face. I said, oh, by the way, being kept by the Lord is a pretty cool thing. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May he cause his countenance to be lifted up upon you. I said, that means that you're going to be looking more like Jesus than you understand. <laughs> and... I said, would you be willing to let us do that? He said, well, I don't know why I would not want to be blessed. 
So here's a guy that's not saved. I haven't said you need to be saved yet, which I wanted to, but I think I don't want to stretch him too far. But, I, but he's absolutely cooperating. So without any real relationship, he didn't know me. He just reaches in his pocket, he pulls out the keys to the building, and he turns it over to me. Whatever you want to do with the building, go ahead and do that. So we cleaned it up. You know, the club all of a sudden goes out, which is get their eviction notice, and all the prophets, intercessors, and people that I knew that had anointing for land stuff uh, called me. <laughs> and we prayed all night there, uh, asked God to be dedicated. We still hadn't seen, uh, at that particular moment, we still hadn't seen the denomination turn. Then we go back to them. And the second visit, I said, have you thought about it? Have you come to the conclusion? They said, well, yeah, we agree with you that it was wrong what we did, but that's just water under the bridge. Not really anything we can do about today. I said, okay. <clears throat> I have keys to the kingdom. I don't have that because I'm somebody special. It's just Jesus has given that to me. I said, the attorney gave me the keys to the building. So the anointing in my life and the authority of that spot has been given. I'm getting ready to get on the floor of your office, and this is what I'm going to pray. Oh God, shut this entire denomination down. Shut down everything that belongs to them. Get them to a place where they repent, and do not allow them anymore to build your house and defile your holy name until they repent. They said, no, 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 don't do that. No, don't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. I said, well, then you get on your knees now and repent. And they did. They did. Now, I don't like to be mean like that. I felt for them. <laughs> Sometimes you want to grab people by the neck, you know, but I don't like that. But when we take this place where we say, look, we just can't ignore this stuff anymore. It's truth. It's righteousness. We've got to be holy. Some life we need to figure out how to get it. So I'm not trying to wreck you, I'm trying to help you. you know. Anyway, they, they got it right. Uh, it was a weak repentance, but still a repentance. And they still existed. <clears throat> Suddenly, without any other thing, three square miles. In my city, a horrible defilement began to shrink. And the population was about the population of that community that would claim to be homosexual, lesbian, and alternate lifestyle. was something around 150,000. It's now down to less than half of that. And no church has done any more than that. The city has grown from 800,000 to over a million. So while the city grew, that population, that neighborhood has shrunk. And suddenly churches are thriving again in that spot. Not just one that we did, but in that whole neighborhood. And then we get a call from the guy that we get newspaper, the guy I started with. He said, there's a friend of mine that's dying of AIDS. Do you know of any preacher that would be willing to like, handle the 
because we've taken him to eight churches. He wants to confess his sins. He, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary, but he wants sin. And it's his dying wish to get some things off of his chest. I've taken him to eight churches, and they won't pray for him. Do you know anybody that would? Because I don't want him to die without this I said, I will. I know a few others that might. I'll call them. And I said, can I ask for permission to do one other thing? He said, what? I said, I want to bring a bucket and a towel. And I want to go to this hospital room. And I want you to call other guys that you know that might or already have that problem. And I would like your permission for me and a few friends of mine above the Lord to wash your feet and pray for any of you, not just you. And he goes, are you kidding me? He said it just like that. I said, no, I'm not kidding. Because you see, I'm a gatekeeper. I have doors that we need to go through. And this is one that many of the righteous don't want to go through. But I want to bring the holiness of God into the room. I want to bring the presence of God in the room. I want to bring his unconditional love in the room. And if we can love you like he loves you, and ask your forgiveness for the things that have happened to you, maybe we could see God give an anointing to start healing angels. Because I believe that my God is the only answer to that problem. He said, I think you're going to have more people want to come to the room than you realize. So, we went to the hospital, we laid hands on his friend. He got saved. He got filled with the Holy Spirit on his bed. He died three days later. I don't know why he didn't get healed. But he didn't get healed. But we washed feet for about a dozen guys. And we didn't do more than that. The rest of them didn't get saved. But here's what happened. When we knelt down the ground, we started washing the feet. The power of God healed. And they started shaking. And none of them could stay in the room. They got up and they ran out of the room. And I just said, sick of Holy Spirit. Things are turning, you know, but it takes some figuring out. Now, after that, I stepped back again and I said, All right, Lord, you got my attention. Now, show me the things that are in me with restraint. That one wasn't really in me, but you made me feel it. Now, show me the things that are in me that I'm doing with restraint. <coughs> and so, you know, there was a little lust in there. There was a little unforgiveness in there. There was a, there was a little, few offenses in there. I know I could give you the whole list, but that's not that important. But I began to look at my heart, and I realized that, all right, how long have I been carrying those? I've known the Lord since I was four years old, and if I've got those problems and I haven't gotten rid of them before the sun went down, then has, is it possible that what I've done with restraint has imparted some things to the city? Because the first principle of gatekeeping is whatever you allow in your heart, God allows in the city. Do you understand that principle now? <coughs> One other example, then I want to show you some scripture. In El Paso, I was called upon by a friend of mine. He said, we've become the murder capital uh, of the South. 
We don't know why. We've got murder going off the charts. And we know we're gatekeepers. And we've been praying at the gate, asking God for some insight on why murder is off the chart in the city. It's just spiked this year for some reason. We can't figure out why. So would you come down and help us figure this out? So I went down there about a month later. Well, I'm a month later, about three weeks later. The whole time I'm praying, God doesn't show me anything uh, before I got there. All he said was, the day you get there, purchase a newspaper and take it with you to the meeting. I don't normally like to read the newspaper, but I just heard the Lord say that. So I get to El Paso, I get off, uh, pull off into a convenience store before I get to church, I buy a newspaper from that day, and I go to the meeting. I glanced at the newspaper, and it says, Mass Murderer, Loose in El Paso. That was the headlines. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I already know that. I mean, it's, that's what we're here to do. I walk in there, I see about 40 guys that, with a church that understands that they have this gatekeeping and on. They don't understand anything about it, just like I don't, but they understand that they're at a very significant spot in a significant city and that they have this anointing. So we start talking, and, and I, I don't have a clue what to say. I know the headline, but I'm sitting there going, I don't know what that. You know, it's like, Jesus, why do you do this to me? <laughs> I don't have a sermon. And I, I didn't know that they needed a sermon. We needed to figure something out from God. So we just prayed. We just started praying. And while we started praying, another guy came in late. His name's Mark. Mark comes in late. I don't know him very well, but I knew he was a member of the church. And we're just praying about the city. Nobody's really giving me anything. And so we just kind of take a break and eat a donut. And while we're eating our donut and drinking cups of coffee, Mark says, hey, while we're all here praying, would y'all pray for me? I said, what's wrong with you, Mark? What's, what's going on? He said, man, I just got this hatred in me. I, I got this thing in my heart, I can't get out, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried to get it out of my heart. I repented, and it's still there. I said, oh. I said, well, Mark, um, tell me about you in this city. He said, oh, I was born here. I said, do you love the place? Yeah. Would you like to live anywhere else? Uh-huh. Um, has God ever told you you're a gay kid? Because he was very good at the church. I didn't know he was born in he said, yeah, I've had three prophecies in my life. That's the only prophecies I've ever had. I've only been saved for about two years. I've had three prophetic words. All of them call me a gatekeeper. I don't really have a clue what that is. Oh. And you hate somebody? Yeah. Is it a believer? Is it another brother or sister? Or yeah. I said, is there a scripture that comes to mind that you're familiar with that deals with that subject? He said, yeah, I know the scripture by heart. I've been trying to get this out of it. It says, if you hate your brother, it's like murder. I said, oh. I said, you read the headlines today? He said, yeah. This, that crazy, this crazy guy. He starts saying, I, I don't know why they can't catch that guy. Blah, 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 blah. You know, he's rattling off because the city's so messed up that some guy's running through there. The police aren't doing their job. And, and I said, Mom, what's your problem? Well, I hate my brother. What is, what is hatred like according to Scripture? Murder. I said, then why are you mad at him? Mass murder. 
Maybe you're the one that needs to be arrested. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you've got to take responsibility for this. He said, I, I am. I want, I want to be free. I said, all right, well, I'll pray for you, but have you really repented or have you just prayed that? Thank you. He said, no, I think I've really repented. He said, how do you know if you really forgiven somebody or not? I said, well, sit down in this chair. So he came out there, sit down. I said, what's the guy's name that you hate? He told me. I said, why do you hate him? Well, he was my business. He was my partner. My, well, my law partner. This guy's an attorney. He was my partner. We had a multi-million dollar practice. He stole all my money. He didn't handle some cases. I nearly went to jail. I, I almost got disbarred. He just absolutely wrecked my life and wrecked my practice. And, and I nearly lost my house and went on and on and on for about five minutes, but all of a sudden this guy does him. I said, well, you know, if you took him to court and sued him, you'd win the case, wouldn't you? He said, yeah. I said, why didn't you do that? He said, well, because he's a brother, and the, Lord, the word says not to sue your brother. I said, oh, so it's not wrong to sue him, but it's right to hate him? <laughs> and he's like, well, just help me, Tim. I don't know how to get free from this. I said, well, I'm going to show you. I said, you're sitting here, just pretend that I'm him, I'm, I'm your friend that did this to you. And tell me you forgive me. Tell me you forgive me as if I was him. And he tried, kid. I said, what knowledge you have of forgiveness? It's okay, don't worry, just did you. I said, speak a blessing over it. He said, what do you mean? I said, what do you do? Everything you desire Jesus to do in your life, Speak a blessing right now in front of all of us with your, with your ex-partner's name on it. Bless him with everything you want Jesus to do for you. He's like, well, I don't know if I can do that. I said, well, you're not leaving this room to you, do And neither am I. <laughs> and neither is everybody else that's willing to go along. So he said, well, will you help me? I said, yeah. I said, let's start with number six. Because the word says, that number, that scripture says, say to Moses, say this to Aaron, speak this over every one of the sons of Israel. He's a, he's a believer, right? Yes. And he deserves this blessing at least. Let's do it. He gets it out. As soon as he says, may the Lord bless you and keep you, a demon manifests. His father wasn't just convinced he had a demon. And it, I mean, so suddenly he's, you know, really on the floor and spitting and cursing and he's like, do this. <laughs> and so we cast the demon out. And when the demon came out, suddenly this guy gets absolutely so transformed in his face, he actually looked about 10 years younger. I mean, it's, it's, I wish we had a before and after picture. I've seen deliverance projects, but I've never seen God countenance change, which literally, I mean, literally, it looked like 10 years of the block of the night. When the demon's gone, he blesses this man, he starts out, he finishes number six, suddenly he's screaming this phenomenal blessing out. He's adding all kinds of stuff that we didn't tell him to say. He's just, he just giving the guy everything that he wants. And he says, i got to go call him right now. i got to go call him and tell him that I've finally forgiven him. 
<laughs> so he heads out to get his cell phone. And while he's gone, my friend, my pastor friend, gets a call from the chief of the police, who he's good friends with, and he often calls Sam to get them to pray for certain things. And he says, Sam, are you guys praying today? Sam says, you wouldn't believe what we're doing today. He said, we just cast out a demon of murder out of this guy that's a member of our church. He goes, oh, well, we thought something was probably going on in your neighborhood because we just caught the mass murder two blocks from your church. He called the police department and turned himself in. And we went and handcuffed him without incident. And then not only that, but the murder rate in that city dropped by over 90% for over a year. I came back up a little bit, but it's normal now. It's not off the charts. It's never been off the charts since. But over in El Paso, there's some really horrible levels of stuff going on. I mean, El Paso. I mean, over in Warrior, there is in El Paso. It's not. And it's a gate. Someone in the gate standing in the gate. <coughs> and it turned back the unrighteousness of the gate. Well, you guys have the potential to do all this kind of stuff. It didn't. You know, it's not that you think harder. We just have to figure out a few clues. So, are y'all alright? They won 20 minutes. You want to stand up? Sorry. Take a quick break. You know how to, you know how to pause that? Don't pause <laughs> Just pause Don't you're talking about what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Same stuff. So, you know, I've seen it both ways. Um, what I find is that uh, places where I've met an individual that knew they were gatekeepers, when we started finding out who their divine connections were, uh, almost all of them and sometimes they weren't congregated in the same church, but they were somehow connected to God had done. Other times I've found a church with a high level of anointing in that, and not every member of that church would carry that anointing, but it was just resonant as a book, as a group. So somebody that's in eldership, somebody that's in charge of the church, somebody that's foundational there, carries a high level of agreement with it, but not necessarily every single member. So every member there can participate in the principle, but doesn't necessarily have that in there. It can be either way, though. I think that's the case here, that uh, the leaders have that anointing, and the birthing of this church had that intent by God. So there's a high level of it in the people that got drawn to come together together. But maybe not across the board with every single member. The story about the nightclub, the church and the nightclub, is that in Oklahoma? Oklahoma City. Do you have any insight on the, the bombing, the Oklahoma City yeah. bombing? Yeah. That's a whole other <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's a big story, but it's I would be the same principle. <coughs> yep. In fact, it was, the, it was one of the massive, uh, I mean, it was like off the chart when God told us what, how that related to the game. And it's a national issue, not just a 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's still a tradition. Uh, I will tell, I'll tell you this too, sometime we have time to get the rest of the story. The Murrah building that was blown up was one of the original churches that was founded when the city was created. And it had been sold to the federal government because that church didn't want to be in a poor neighborhood anymore. They abandoned that neighborhood and moved out where the wealthy were. Wow. And so the city was taken and the state sold it to the federal government. They tore down the church, built the Murrah building, and now it's a sacred site again. It is. Oh, yeah. Oklahoma federal land. Yeah. Really? So it, wow. it feels like a holy place when you walk on it now. Is there uh, anything on it? Or yeah. There's a memorial. There's a tree that survived the blast. And there are chairs set up for every single person that died. It's uh, there. And, and, and you, you feel the presence of God when you walk on that spot because it's been given back to I don't understand all the Timothy McVay part of that, but it was a judgment on my city. <clears throat> and it was a judgment on the church. And uh, there was a lot of issues that were layered in that. But the root issue was the heart of the church community in the city that was abandoning the downtown just to go out where the money was. So we brought a lot of repentance from the, the city in the church as a city for that issue after we got with the pain and the, the issue of bombing there was some grievances and things that had to get through once we got to that then we addressed the roof church issue and what's funny when the bomb went off there were six churches in the foundation of the city when the bomb went off the blast damaged every foundational church you know from the city they all had to be torn down to the foundation and rebuilt what? It didn't just blow up that building, it blew. It, it shook so violently all the buildings around it that the, the foundational churches that were all in that square mile of the, from the Buckingham City, on the eighth day after the city was burned, those churches were incorporated. They plotted out lots from the land run and they began to build their congregations. Those churches were all the foundational churches. At one time, they were the only churches in the city. And when that bomb went off, it damaged every one of those buildings to the point that they had to be torn down the foundation of the building. So the word of the Lord that came out in our city was, this was a judgment to bring the house of God back to the foundation. I don't get all the, you know, legal side of that and why it the most. We, don't, we still this day think there's things that Tisha McKay did that may never get understood fully. But... It was not a crazy guy just blowing up a building. God was doing something to get the attention of the whole city. But that's a gatekeeping issue. We didn't we didn't uh, watch over those gates, and, and uh, we didn't watch over the foundation. We didn't build uh, the kind of church oh, that was what the Lord found. And so the Lord just reminded us what kind of church he wanted to stack down the foundation. We began to rethink how churches function. We were doing a little better now than we were back then. What's the gifting of your city? The redemptive gift? Yeah, sorry. Uh, most people think that uh, Oklahoma is a servant state. Still a little bit uh, back and forth. I think the Oklahoma City is also uh, a servant that a lot of, about half the people believe it's a prophecy. What? A prophecy. Um, that I question that because it, that city is like uh, it just kills prophets. 
Is that where Rama Bible College is? No, Rama is in Tulsa. Oh, it's in Tulsa? Yeah, not too far away, an hour and a half away. So, um, uh, it, it may be Mercy. There's a lot of people there who get to Mercy. And, uh, and what, but there's, uh, you know, Arthur Burke's a friend of mine, but there's a lot of um, uh, things about Mercy we're still figuring out. So I think that, that there, you know, he's got a lot of clues on it, but I think that that type of city is sometimes uh, layered with other stuff. Yeah. And it's hard to see sometimes if there's other things in the land. But we've got a lot of issues because we've Native American issues, state issues, city issues. Um, uh, it's, uh, and so the, the giftings of many of the Native Americans are distinctly different from the state. You know? And that kind of puts an extra layer that makes things yeah. a little bit hard to figure out. So those nations that are incorporated, there's 39 sovereign nations within the boundaries of Oklahoma. Every one of them has a different redemptive gift. And yet they lie on top of land across the state that looks like the whole land of servant land. But it's like taking somebody with one redemptive gift and, and forcing them to live on servant land, and that, uh, that hasn't always been good for them. And then Oklahoma City seems to be kind of a mingling of a, of a lot of that overlapping. So it's been a little difficult to figure out. But I personally believe that it's a servant city with a servant state. And, and uh, the church there historically has not served the community very well. But when we have turned our hearts towards the community instead of just trying to get the community to come to the church, things have picked up considerably. And uh, we're figuring it out. I'm, I'm, I'm not confident in what I just said being totally accurate. Sure. All right, everybody sit down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go farther because it keeps on moving. Look at a couple of scriptures. Psalm I thought David said that as a despising what? You know, like, you know, the least job you could have would be a doorkeeper. You think about going to a five-star hotel, there might be somebody at the door, and it's kind of a menial job. That's all they do is open the door for you, you know. And uh, so it, it, read, it read to me like David was saying, ah, I'd rather be even a big gatekeeper, you know, than to be in the tents of the wicked. And yet I don't believe that. I believe David understood that gifting within himself and he was embracing that grace and seeing the value in it. So there's a statement that I make sometimes. I said this to Gary. Um, I think all of you need to hear this in a personal way. Because God's intent is to show you your grace, help you understand uh, what your birthright and blessing is, and something about your gifting, your anointing, your calling, all has to come to a place where you kind of figure it out 
doesn't mean you're doing it all, but you figure out what it is. And when you embrace the grace, it causes unction to function. So with grace is in place, unction will function. But grace can't be in place in the city until God's sons and daughters embrace what he has created them to be. you got to know who you are and what you are and where you're supposed to do it. So it can't be fully functional where you're supposed to do it if you haven't figured it out in the perfect way. So pay attention to the prophetic words that God gives you, especially if he's speaking to you about you. Pay attention to your dreams, because he's revealing often things that he wants you to know about yourself. And then get on your face and say, what you make me for? It's the right of every child of God to know what he created them for. Sometimes we're so frustrated with our jobs, we're so frustrated with careers, we're so frustrated with lack of success in our life, and it's often because we're pursuing interviews instead of pursuing what we were created for. If you figure out what you were created for and then pursue interviews, your life starts making sense pretty fast. Now that might help you a little <laughs> Not a correction, but just uh, what do you know about yourself? If you have any questions still, that's just as valid to get answered as where do I go to work then? Alright. <coughs> Acts chapter 3, if you guys word open there, I want to read this. And then. Uh, How many of you have some kind of witness in your heart or prophetic word that the Lord has given you that has called you in some individual way or a gatekeeper? Got quite a few of you. Um, if you think about it in terms of what started at the door, then a lot of times God creates a very unique individual to be a gatekeeper. Then he tells them they have that grace. And one of the things that has troubled me about this principle is most of the people, when they first hear a word from the Lord that they're a doorkeeper or they're a gatekeeper, he doesn't explain it. He just leaves it at that. Now, Peter had that problem. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, Peter. And then he just went on down the road. <laughs> and, and you know, you know the, those guys will argue sometimes about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to be the least. You know, you know, can I sit on your right hand and laugh? And you know, they even had a mama chasing Jesus around asking for her two sons to have the best places. So you know, you know, just by deferment of, of what's going on in other contexts of Scripture, that that all the other eleven guys had to be ribbon on Peter, going, "What he did." Show me the key. He's like, he didn't give me nothing. <laughs> well, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> and, and I think that he probably talked to Jesus about it at some point. But for some reason, with this principle, God likes doing that. He likes saying it. He likes just tossing you the keys and then making you figure something out about it. So what do you do when you got a key? You know, you ever found a key in your house and you wonder what it went to? What is this? What is supposed to be? You know, I know this is important. What does it go to? It's that money box I can't find. <laughs> I found a, a, an infinity key one time laying on a parking lot. And I've been praying for a new car, and I said, "There's 
there's my car. <laughs> and then I started scanning the parking lot for infinity. <laughs> Couldn't find one, so I just stuck it in my pocket and kept driving. <laughs> but God seems to do that. He likes to do it with this particular gifting for some reason. I think it's because a key relates to doors a lot. But a key says, I've got something in my hand that has power to open something. If you don't know what it's supposed to open, you've just got a key that's pretty worthless. But when God says, I'm giving you the keys, it makes you want, it's like a little kid. You know, if you get a little kid a set of keys, they start trying to stick it in them. But they know what they're for. So they're sticking it in the tape recorder, and they're sticking it in the freezer, and they're sticking it, you know, in your um, stuff that's important. And they're trying to unlock everything. And and there's something about the heart of people that God gives us grace to that he wants us to search it out. Think about the scripture that says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. God likes that process. So he makes you try to figure yourself out a little bit. And the reason why he wants that is because you're like a child that he's given you a tremendously phenomenal level of authority to when he says that statement to you. But he wants you to figure it out. And in the process of trying to figure out what you're supposed to do with it, you come to a place where you mysteriously gain understanding on what to do in your city when you begin to know how to walk it. Same kind of process. What did I just describe to you? Two examples that we had to walk through and figure out. It's a mystery. It starts out with just a murder in the news. It starts out with just a defilement in the land. But searching it out made me find where the key goes. It's it's in practice in the city what you have done for years sometimes trying to figure out what he meant by that word. Does that make sense? So it's like... You're just his kid, and you know he's letting you wear the shoes sometimes when you're not quite grown up yet. But as you're walking around, you know, figuring out, you figure out how to do it you know, by the process. So Peter was that way. God gives him this thing, tells him he's a, <coughs> got keys to the kingdom, and doesn't really explain it. No one scripture uh, from the time Jesus said that to Peter until he got dies on the cross, is there any evidence that Jesus explained this to? But the Holy Spirit helps him. Okay? Well, look at verse three. Peter and John went up together to the temple, the ninth hour. Certain lame man came, who was lame from his mother's womb, was carried to that place. With and they laid him daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. Do y'all know what gate that is? Anybody here know what gate that is? You got a wall gate, and you got a temple gate. The wall gate is called the Eastern Gate. The temple gate is called the Beautiful Gate. Right? If you're going to come in the Eastern Gate and go into the temple, you're going to go through the Beautiful Gate. That's where Jesus came in the city. It's very significant because the Messiah was going to come through the eastern gate. And the beautiful gate is the gate that the king and the high priest were supposed to sit down and in council together. If the king was going to make a decree 
or if the priest was going to release something from God, it was often released by gathering the body together in front of the temple courts, and they would sit in that gate, get the mind of God, and then release what he wanted. So here's a lame man sitting in that gate. Does anybody know what the Jewish custom was? If you were called to be a priest but was lame, you were disqualified. Can't be a priest if you land. In fact, David was a gatekeeper. We know that. When he attacks Jerusalem to take it from the Jebusites, the Jebusites speak this talk to him. Even the blind and the lame can't get it again. And he gets up through the water shafts and takes the city. But there's another verse that says David hated the lame and the blind. Think about that from a gatekeeper's perspective. It's like my friend in my pastor hated his brother. King David, before he got the crown, the word says he hated the blind and the lame. You know why? Because they believed in his culture that if you were blind or if you were lame, especially if you were born that way, that it was a curse from God. There was something wrong with you. Not something wrong with you physically, something wrong with you in your heart, something wrong with your parents and your, gen- and your generational line. So you're cursed, that's why you're blind and blind. It's the level of despisement to somebody that's born with a problem is really terrible. And so David had this hatred in him. And isn't it funny that his covenant with Jonathan causes them to have to come into relationship with those that were in Jonathan's line, so he ends up with a guy named Mephibosheth, even at his, temp- at his table, who happens to be lame in both feet. So before his kingdom got very far, God made him start dealing with this hatred in his heart. And he gets it out because of covenant with his friend. And he treats Mephibosheth pretty well. The story doesn't always work out, you know, totally well, but Mephibosheth kind of wasn't the best guy either. But it's a place where something in the heart is manifesting, and it's got something going on in the way of working out. And even the city, here's the city of the Jebusites, saying to David, even the blind and the lame can't get in here. The reason why they're saying that is we know your weakness. We know where you're locked up. And if you're locked up in your heart, we're pretty confident God's not going to give you the city. Does that make sense? What if that's what the demonic realms are saying? I know your weakness. I know where you're locked up. Therefore, whatever God wants to do with you, I'm not intimidated by you. Now, he found a way in. He still overthrew him. But it was only because God helped him out, not because he could have done it on his own. All right, when you come here, understanding that in a cultural way, you come in the New Testament, the culture still is saying that belief that a blind, a, lame, a blind man or a lame man is not qualified for the priesthood or for government duties because the whole nation considered it a curse. Here's a lying man from his birth sitting at the gate. That's the beautiful gate where only the high priest or the king is supposed to sit. Why does he want to beg at that gate? 
That's not the most populous gate. In fact, it's the least trafficked gate. Because the king and the priest and their entourage are supposed to go in through there. But if you want to go to the place where all the people are and get a lot of money if you're a beggar, you're going to go to the sheep gate. Where everybody came in and all the marketplace was going on. Kind of like the downtown district. That's where all the shops and stuff were. That's where the merchandising was going on. If you want to fill your cup with coins while you're begging, you're going to go where people are walking by. And for some reason, this guy had his friends or family putting him at a certain spot. I think it's because he knew he was supposed to be there. Okay? Now, if you look at that as a gatekeeper, he had something in his spirit that he knew, I've got to do something at this gate, even if my city won't let me function, even if everybody thinks I'm cursed, even if everybody thinks I'm crazy for wanting to beg here, I'm compelled to come to this spot because there's something in me that needs to sit at this gate. One of my friends that's a Jewish rabbi has access to all the genealogy um, data in Israel. If you want to be a citizen of Israel, you're going to go through that office and they look at your genealogy and figure out if you're Jewish enough to come back and become a citizen. He researched who was this man. And there's some history that he found because the entire city was disrupted after the cross, after the resurrection. There was an amazing level of turnover going on. Caiaphas, Annas were kind of rascals. And it's pretty clear in the scriptures that they weren't the kind of high priests or the kind of church leaders that should have been having charge of the temple. In fact, what my friend found out is that in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah is one of the best examples of gatekeeping and operation. And we were talking about it, and then he goes back and looks at some genealogy. So before we get to Acts, I want, I want to just take a little steer here and look at Nehemiah for a second. Not, not, don't even have to turn there, but think about what Nehemiah did. He's coming to restore the city. It's desolate. Not one stone has been left on another. The wall's broken down. The doors are not there. It's ashes. But when he gets on a donkey to inspect the condition of the city, the word says in Nehemiah that he rode his donkey down the wall and then turned his donkey and went through a gate and then he rode it down the other side of the wall and he came to a place where there was a bunch of rubble so he turned around and he retraced his steps just like this. Now, a donkey is the kind of animal that can go over rubble. You don't need to respect a gate on a donkey. You can go right over the rubble. So why did he respect a wall that didn't exist? It's just ashes. Why did he go through a gate that had no door, it had no doorpost up, and it didn't ruin? Because he had integrity in his heart. He understood that I must walk in the way for my God if I'm going to bring restoration to the city. This is the way Jesus would come in. He respects it. He's not going to come in through the window, right? He comes to the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not even going to force his way into your heart. So Nehemiah did the same way. And then God sees that, gives him the anointing to bring the restoration, and he ends up accomplishing this massive task of rebuilding the wall. And before they started on the wall, the word says they set up the doors and the doorposts. Do you realize that it's hard to hold the doorposts up? if you don't have a wall to attach it to. But before they started building the wall, they set up the door and set the post. Set the doors on their hinges. Set up the door post. It's a principle that we're supposed to get right before we start trying to restore a whole city. It's one of the keys of revival. 
If we don't get the gates right, we can't have the whole city. We can't truly bring revival until we start figuring out what's wrong at the gate and fix something at the gate. In fact, if you look at the history of revivals, they happen at certain spots where people are driven by the Lord begin to cry out for him and most of the time they break open because they begin repenting for things in their own heart and if that's the gatekeeping principle it may be why they get revived. So they get the city because they come to the gate and begin to go back to the ways of God. And we try to repeat it with a program or repeat it with a big meeting and we don't get the gatekeeping part right sometimes. So here's the MIT does that. Now we get to Peter. And Peter says, See, let's just go up to the temple and pray. John, they get their head there, and they see this guy. Peter realizes the whole city's being turned upside down. Everything's changing. Jesus is resurrected. It's a phenomenal move of God on. They're just going to go pray. They didn't have a plan for the whole day. And I promise you, they've walked by that man before. It's the same place that Jesus came into the city. So when Jesus came in as king, he walked by that same man, but didn't heal. Because, here's the principle. What did Peter say to that guy? I don't need to read every verse. What did he say to him? So we're going to have a nine. What I have, I give to you. What did he have? Rise up and walk. What did he have? He said, what I have, I give you. What did he have? Jesus himself. The king is right. Here's the principle. Jesus rides in to that same day on a donkey as king, right? And then he gets crucified a few days later. Now, where is he? They've been to the upper room. They pray. They come into one accord. The Holy Spirit has come down upon them. Where is Christ as King living now? In them. No one was supposed to go through the Eastern Gate except the Messiah. So Peter and John come right in without thinking twice about it. Why? Because they're carrying the Messiah. They're carrying the King within them. They have a right to go through the King's Gate because He's in them. They're just bringing the King back to the city. Isn't it cool? And so they come to him and go have an eye. But what I have given you to you, here's Jesus. I love that Holy Spirit comes. It's the same thing. But it's, here's the king. And now in his name, rise up and walk. And that guy then does what we're all commanded to do when you go into the courts of God, come entering into his courts, leaping, jumping, shouting, praising God. He does that very verse. He lives it out. Why? Because he got healed. But who was he? Why was he compelled to sit at that gate? Well, Herod sold the temple and the right to collect the tithe to Annas, who was not a very godly man. He marries his daughter to Caiaphas, who was a, a mixed blood, not a, even supposed to be a priest. They began to run the priesthood as a political and financial enterprise, not as a holy enterprise. They defiled the whole temple. That's why Jesus turned the tables over, because he knew what all they were doing. And if you trace their lineage, Annas was a direct descendant of Eliashim, who was the high priest in Nehemiah's day, and Tobias, who was the guy that troubled Nehemiah so much, was the direct ancestor of Caiaphas. So 
So those two didn't belong in the job of running the temple. And what my rabbi friend found out is this mysterious man that we don't even know his name, but he found out who he was. He was supposed to be the high priest. He was in the lineage of the family that had a right to the high priesthood. But Jesus was the high priest. So the one that had the anointing to have that job was born lame, couldn't have the job because everyone in the city says you're disqualified. So an unregenerate guy takes over, buys the rights of the tithes, puts his brother-in-law in charge of all the business, and they messed up royal and the whole city and defiled it. But the man that deserved to keep the righteousness and the purity and the holiness in the priesthood office was considered lame by his whole city, so he's just compelled to sit at the gate because he knows if I wasn't lame, I would have the right to sit in this gate because it's my bloodline, it's my birthright, it's my anointing. And he's waiting for God to do something to help him get back into what he knows he's born for. And it's a mystery that played out. We just have a little surface sometimes that we miss the whole mystery part because if he had been functional, if he had been the high priest, he would have had another problem because Jesus walked in and Jesus was the real high priest. But now, here's a man who in his healing, he receives the real high priest. And then he comes into the temple exactly the way God wants us to enter in. And as a gatekeeper, you've got to see this guy as a gatekeeper, he is unlocking the righteousness, the holiness of the priesthood office by entering back into the courts with the anointing and he's free and he's healed and he's bringing the king in. And at that moment, for just within days and months, massive change starts happening in the priesthood. Many of the priests begin to become believers. He opened the door. I think that if we can get a gatekeeper healed, whatever it is that's laming him, it's not always physical. You might have a heart problem. You might have a thin problem. You might have something that's just not fixed in your life and God wants it fixed. What is it that's disqualifying for the presence? I'm not talking about for knowing Jesus. I'm not talking about for ministry. We're all ministers and there isn't one I've ever met, including me, that's everything we're supposed to be. But what's disqualifying you from having the tangible manifest presence of God? Why isn't it here all the time? Why are we, why are we not walking in the garden with him all the time? What's keeping him from us? It's things in us that we need to get healed from. Silver and gold have our nine, but what I have can have. We need more of him just to come and heal us and then let's go into the temple with his presence. That man helped orchestrate a turnover in the priesthood after he got healed. Annas and Caiaphas lost the office. They were removed. You can find that out in history if you want to. It's not all written word for word in the scriptures, but it's in the, the Jewish history. All right. Let's look at one other question. Genesis 28. There's an interesting passage here, and I don't want to read every scripture. I want you to write these down and kind of become Bereans and look at it. 
but we talked about the principal gatekeeping. I think that's figured out. Now, here's a way to begin to operate at the gates. And there are several different types of gates. You have a, a gate that may just be a portal for things to come in and out. It's a city that comes into alignment and there's a lot of traffic going in and out. Of it. Sometimes there's places in the scriptures where there's a, a portal like this and it's an open heaven. Uh, the threshing floor that David purchased. He said, surely God is here and I knew it not. He buys this threshing floor and it's just a socket in the, in the ground. It's just a place for the garner the weed. But he sees the angel Lord and he buys it. It becomes the altar in the temple that they built. Jacob sees this spot. He dreams a dream. He lays his head on a rock, dreams a dream, sees the gate of heaven, he says. And he says, this is surely, this God is in this place, and I knew it not. This is the gate of heaven, and I am greatly afraid. And he named it Bethel, the house of God. To this day, there's never been a building built there. There's never been a temple built there. It's an altar that Jacob built to dedicate to God. But Jacob named it the house of God. What made those two places the house of God? They were spiritual gates, but what made them gates that could be called the house of God? It's because he was there, the one we serve. My definition of church has changed greatly. No Jesus, no church. No presence, no church. That's my definition. You can take it or leave it. <laughs> so you look at Genesis 28, there's an interesting story here where a father said to his son, I want to help you make a decision. And I want you to follow a protocol to make sure you don't miss this area of your life. And the area he's talking about is marriage. Now, I don't know how many people in America would follow this protocol because that son didn't get to pick his bride. His father orchestrated a major conducting a business with God to make sure that the right bride is brought to his son. So God picked the bride and the father helped carry it out. One of the things that opens a gate that causes a massive change in the territory is when we come into a place where we connect with Father God and are willing to walk with a massive level of strict obedience allowing him to orchestrate the major decisions in our life instead of us doing it and then crying out to him after we mess it up. So we have to choose that place before the major decision is at hand. I have to come to a place where I'm willing to let Debbie be the one that runs my life. That level of obedience causes a major gate to open up over your life. And that gate that opens up is an open heaven over your head. Does that make sense? It's this kind of game. Like Jacob found. When Jacob, you see, when Jacob found the portal, it was because he was walking in the blessing of his father. Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So here's Isaac who is a little older than the average guy, hadn't got married yet, and Abraham decides it's time for my son to get married. So he orchestrates this thing. And Isaac submits to it. 
All right, Dad, go ahead and go find me one. So strict obedience to our Father's instructions. And receiving our Father's blessing is the prerequisite for opening the first vital gate that God wants to open in our lives. And that's helping heaven over your head. Okay. If you look at that verse, chapter 28 of Genesis 1-7, through you can see that protocol of obedience in a massively important decision of his life caused him to come into place where Abraham seeks the blessing over Isaac and then shortly after that God himself appears to Isaac and says, I am the God of your father. He wouldn't have gotten that experience with God if he had not followed the protocol of his father who knew the ways of God. You get it? Verse 10 through 11, it goes from Isaac to Jacob. Now we've got Jacob. While he's on his journey, he stops to spend the night at a certain place. And this gate of heaven opens. But you've got to understand that Jacob had just received this blessing from his father. So before he gets to the gate, he's got a blessing that came from his father. And so the journey, we see both of these guys, Isaac, Abraham sent his servant to find her, him a wife. And Jacob, Isaac, orchestrated some things and told him, don't marry a Canaanite, don't marry a woman in this place, go to the place where we got some relations and get a wife there. In both cases, it was a little different story, but it was still a massive level of submission to the ways of their father in order to have this, the answer to the one they needed for a life made. Marriage is one of the most massive areas that's out of order in our nation. I would submit to you that some parents, natural parents, might not be wise enough to pick your brother or your mate, but your father in heaven absolutely is. And you ought to give your parents the right to be involved in that process. Trusting that God is able to do something with them if you submit to him. And what you need is the blessing of your father that causes God then to begin to orchestrate how to answer the massive decision that you need to come to your life. If you find the right mate, it's a phenomenal thing. You either find it the wife, find it the good thing. You know why? Because if you find her God's way, you get him too. I call my wife Mrs. Jesus. <laughs> Not because she's married to me. <coughs> All right. Verse 17, Jacob calls this place that he sees the gate of heaven, the house of God. And he dedicates it and names it Bethel. So it's a mystery why that spot was so important. It's just something in God's design. Now, there's another story in Joshua 5, verse 5 through 15. And this is a gate-keeping passage that reveals to us how to possess the land in a regional way. The the prerequisite for opening this gate came in two parts. The first one was circumcision. 
They didn't have a right to take that day until everyone was circumcised. Now, in the scriptures, it's clear with other scriptures that this was not just the circumcision of the body. God's intent is to circumcise our hearts. What does that mean? It means that I have allowed him, as my father, to take his knife and to cut away my flesh and make me a new heart like his. And until you submit to that, the authority of gatekeeping is is in, in jeopardy. Because if you don't have God's heart, you can really mess up the city if you have this anointing. The circumcision and that is an act of dedication and acceptance of covenant with God. And it's an agreement in your heart to be made holy by allowing God to do something in your heart. In this case, what God did in this passage is he removed shame and the reproach of Egypt. You know, most of us, when you get saved, the average person has been through life a little bit before they get saved. And we all know that we got saved out of some kind of sin in our life. But a lot of us in our heads still have not allowed Jesus to take away from us the shame or the reproach of our past. So you know you know Jesus, but you don't feel holy, but you're still carrying around the shame and the reproach of your past. You have to be circumcised to get that out. Not in body, but in heart. It's a, it's a covenant you come into God. Lord, look, Lord, I believe it. I asked you in my heart. You say, I believe that, but I don't feel that way. You know? Would you get this out of me? Not just <clears throat> forgiveness, but now remove from me the residue of my past. Remove from me the fruits of the things I did before I knew you. Remove from me the power of reproduction of those sins, transgressions, and iniquities, so I can learn to walk in your ways, and I can feel holy because you are holy. I can be like you. Whatever that takes, stay on your face and press after Father God until he brings his knife to your heart. Not to cut away your sin, but to remove from you the residue of You get that, suddenly... You begin to come into your identity. You begin to come into your authority. And the grace, the anointing, the gifts that he's put in you suddenly start coming alive. The second part of that is found in verse 13. And that is this simple thing, that having a a release from God that allows you the ability to see as God sees. So if you can be circumcised in your heart, and comes a place where you see like God sees, then he can give you the authority to begin to transform a region. If you can't see like God sees, you don't always know what he wants to do to transform that region. If you don't have his heart, you don't always know how to conduct yourself towards everybody that needs transformation, so you're just as locked up as they are, even if you know Jesus. that make sense? In Joshua 6.2, we see a little progression of that because the Lord gives Joshua Jericho, its king, and the mighty men of valor. That's the way it's described. And there's a blessing that is given to Joshua. 
it comes not from warfare. It comes from the night before when he has an encounter with an angel. And he says to the angel, are you for us or for them? And the angel says, neither, but as captain of the host as I can. Now wait a minute. This is an angel of God, right? Joshua knows it's an angel of God, and he knows they're going to attack Jericho, and God has told them to go do that. But here's the angel of the Lord who's the captain of the host of God, and he hasn't decided which side to fight on yet. It's a gate problem. And he has Joshua do something interesting. <clears throat> you remember the story of Rahab? What was Rahab? Where was she living? Right on top of the gate. On the wall, right on top of the gate. Isn't it funny that God made the spies go to the gate and hide there? And their heart had to receive the prostitute in a way that normally a righteous man would not. Doesn't mean they sinned there. It means they treated her differently. They didn't treat her like a prophet. They knew she was. She saved their lives. If they had treated her with despisement, she might not have saved their lives. So was she a gatekeeper? Yes. Absolutely. What happens when the gatekeeper is a prostitute? What have you allowed in your own heart? God allows in the city. What was Jericho? It's full of iniquity. So much so, God wanted to wipe it off the map. We're inspired out. Yep, full of iniquity. But somehow the holiness of God, the circumcision that they have had in their heart in the desert, was able to look at the prostitute, the gatekeeper that was probably responsible for all the iniquity of the city, and come to her in a redemptive way. But now, you know, did they have authority? Because they made a covenant with her and they hadn't referred to Joshua about it yet. You understand? What they promised her? You get everybody in your household, in your, in your home, you keep them there, and you put this scarlet thread in your window so that we will know that this is the right spot and we're going to tell our leaders to leave you alone and keep you alive. But if they're not in here, if you're not in here, we are not responsible for this oath. So she had to come into a place where she stood in the gate trusting God to deliver her. She didn't just get delivered from prostitution. She didn't just get delivered from the attack of the city. She became the great, great grandmother of Jesus. (laughs) Because one of those spies ended up marrying her later. And, you know, it's one thing to treat a prostitute nice. It's another 
to so understand the redemption of God, to so understand the heart of God, to know that she was lost in her sin and had defiled the city with the anointing in her life, but still the restoration was to bring her into Israel and allow her not just to live, but to be married into the, to the nation and to become a whole new person. You know? And then a man that knew how to have the love of God took her as a wife and loved her and treated her. And she was a holy woman for the rest of her days. And God loved that so much that he said, I want that DNA in my son. It's an amazing story at the game. But here's Joshua's problem. The angel hadn't decided which one he's going to fight for. He says, I don't know. I'm, I'm not for either one of you. But as captain of the host of the Lord, if I come, it means I'm standing here in the valley of decision. A battle is about to take place. And there's a little problem on both sides. Yeah, they're God's people, but they got a whole lot of stuff that God's not too happy with. And yeah, this is a defiled city, but God is merciful. And Joshua is told, take off your shoes for the place that you stand is holy. Now, wait a minute. This is the most defiled spot at that time in history on the face of the earth. And Joshua is standing there as the captain of the Israel army, and he's told, take off your shoes because the place that you stand is holy. And he's looking at that city. He knows the reputation. He understands the kind of defilement that's there. He understands that if that defilement stays in the land, all of Israel is probably going to be defiled by it. And God's saying, can you look at this and call it holy? Now, this is a mystery. Because how does a righteous man look at defilement and see something holy? It's a land issue and the people issue. You've got to understand it. See, here's the deal. If I can say this is holy just because God says it is, then it's up to God to decide if he's going to redeem it or judge it. But if I make the determination, I don't like what they're doing, I'm going to wipe them out. Because God hates sin. I may, in the, I may discover in the process of trying to wipe them out that I've got the same thing in me. And if I judge them, what's God have to do with me? But if, it's not the same judgment where we let them off the hook either. It's not saying, well, I'm not going to judge them. You know, we, we give them except that scripture. Well, I'm, you know, don't judge anybody because you'll be judged. No, that's not what that means. It means if I'm going to make a judgment about them, I have to first make a judgment about me. Am I holy, Lord? Am I clean? Am I upright before you? I can't answer that out of my own head. No. So, Lord, I don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to call holy what you call holy and let you sift it out. And, and by him being able to take his shoes off and acknowledge that there's something that doesn't look on the outer appearance as holy, but there's something that God is willing to call holy on the land. It saved Rahab in her house. And it caused the angels to say, all right, now you've got my heart, now you're a leader, now you're a gatekeeper, now you're acting like Jesus, so I'll fight for you. Does that make sense? 
one more. Peter, in Acts chapter uh, 10, verse 1 through 11, Peter has a dream. Now remember that Peter had already been told, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, but he didn't know what that was. Right? So now he goes to Joppa. He's already walking in the apostolic. The, the revival's on, but things are advancing. But it's going to the Jews. Okay? He goes to this house in Joppa. He's staying there. Believers, there's stuff going on. People are getting saved. There's healings. There's all kinds of wonderful things happening. At that house, it says, he became very hungry, but instead of going to the kitchen, he goes to the upper room and begins to uh, pray, but falls into a deep sleep that God calls. And in that sleep, a sheet comes down with a whole bunch of unclean stuff on it. And you know, they're kosher. They only eat certain foods. So guess what's on the sheet? The bit of pig. The bit of moose. <laughs> Probably a goat or two. <laughs> Something unclean. Might have been some chocolate-covered ants on that sheet. I, I had to eat those one time. <clears throat> um, so Peter sees the sheep and his religious heart that's not quite been fully circumcised yet, even though he's already walking in apostolic, that's kind of scary. Um, yeah. <laughs> no way. I never allowed anything unclean to touch my lips. Now, you know, he ate a lot of fish, but he didn't eat the stuff on that sheep. So the sheet goes back up. They had a you know, second meeting in heaven. Jesus said, no, nope, can't let him get away with that. Down it comes again. Peter, rise up. Kill and eat. Again, he says, not so, Lord. I've never done this. I'm, I can't do this. I'm too religious, Peter. And then it happens a third time. And this time, Jesus goes after his heart. He says, Peter, don't call unclean what I have called clean. What does that mean? Is it about the pig? What did Peter hate? What did he believe couldn't be saved? The Gentiles. <laughs> so here's the gatekeeper. Locked up in his heart. Whatever you allow in your heart. God has to allow in the city. So I'm not going to let the Gentiles come in because they're unclean. And all the other 11 apostles agreed with me. And we're walking in the apostolic and we're having revival and we're walking we're doing with the presence thing. And it's all happening, buddy. But we're leaving out the rest of the earth. We're not going after the nations out there. We're just going to save Israel and keep it to ourselves. Sometimes think that the church in America is trying to have a presence party and not trying to bring it to the lost. We want Jesus to come down and get in our little box and have a party with us, and he hates most of our little boxes. <laughs> <laughs> That's another sermon. 
Here's Peter locked up. God's freeing him up. What's the Lord doing? He's circumcising his heart because he's got the keys. And if he won't exercise those keys with God's heart, what happens? The regional gate can't open. And God has already prophesied that my redemptive plan is about redemption. God says my plan is for the Jew and the Gentile. And you guys are messed up. You don't understand how religious you are. Even in the revival, even in the fact that the, the tongues of fire has set on them, and they're praying in the Spirit, and His shadows healing people, even with that, He had something that wasn't Jesus-like. And so the Lord gets it. He repents. You know, He says, okay, Lord, I hear you. And then immediately the Lord says, all right, there's going to be a knock at the door. And when that knock at the door comes, it's people that I've sent. Don't hesitate to go with them and tell them the good news. Now this is what's interesting. Right before that passage, it starts talking about Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier of the Italian cohort. You know he's eating pizza with pepperoni. He's <laughs> 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 you know. <laughs> And that guy is paying his tithes, paying his alms, and he doesn't know God. He's acting righteously, and he doesn't know God. He's doing something that got God's attention, and he sees an angel, and the angel says to him, Send your servants to Joppa. Inquire at this certain place for a man called Simon. He'll come to you and tell you what I need you to know. Now, wait a minute. The guy's saying, oh God, I want to know you. And here's an angel coming down. Why didn't the angel just tell him how to get saved? Because God didn't want the angel to be the one that he gave the responsibility to. He had given one of his sons the keys. And that's the way it's supposed to come. And God is a respecter of his gates. And he's a respecter of you as his doors. And there's things that he will not do in the earth until you start doing it with him. Even, even angels can't violate the principle that God has given to you. They can pronounce it, they can set it up, they can help us out, but they can't do those key things that you've been given. So, Peter goes off with the guys. Now, this is what's fascinating about the story. It's two things happen before Peter sees the sheep. Just a few days before this, Another guy who was a pretty big rascal and was threatening to kill every Christian in the region is on his journey to search out every single person that was a part of the way and bring them to justice and death. And that guy was Saul. And just a few days before Peter sees the sheep, Saul gets knocked to the ground, sees Jesus face to face, and says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? And then commissions him as an apostle to who? The Gentiles. But he's got to go to Arabia and get some revelation on what that's all about. He's got to go to 
Antioch, he's got to connect with Barnabas, he's got to go through all these divine connections in this series to get to a gate called Antioch and plan it so he can sit in the desert, get some revelation, sit with some other holy men that already know how to be like Jesus. He can't do the apostolic stuff yet because he's not ready and the gatekeeper hasn't repented yet. So God is so confident in what he's going to do with Peter that he commissions an apostolic move, sets it all up, gets it in motion, and then it can't even be anything but dysfunctional until the gatekeeper steps in and repents. But he's so confident that he's able to get that from Peter. It's an amazing thing that God knows about us. He's like, I'm not going to let you get away with, with this. I already got all this stuff in motion. And the next thing that's fascinating is Cornelius, three days earlier, has this vision with the angel and sends his servants to go find this guy. Before God even gave Peter the vision, he's already got this step in motion. <laughs> and everything in those two things that are already in motion, and it's a fascinating level of activity going on, that the whole earth is going to be changed by, cannot get completed until Peter eats the stuff on the sheep. He's in the same place that Joshua was. Joshua had to look at a city and not judge it by the outer appearance, but say, I agree with you. If you call it holy, it's holy. Blessed be what? My God, blessed. Holiness is up to him. I don't know how to judge that, so I'll let this angel decide with God's commissioning. And I'll either fight or I'll repent. I'll either join them or I'll kill them. Whatever God decrees. He doesn't know what the answer was going to be, but he had to act as though the city might get delivered. And then Peter's in the same place. Peter has got to take this massive cultural problem that had been in him from his youth, from the time he was a baby, every priest, every teacher, every Jew that he knew, probably his own mama and daddy, had told him the Gentiles are unclean, stay away from them, don't touch them, and you never, never, ever, ever eat the stuff those guys eat. And somehow God says, hey, uh, forget all that. Don't you call unholy what I call holy. Don't you call unclean what I call clean. And these two gatekeepers, Joshua and Peter, have to make this radical transformation in their life that violates everything they've ever known. But they've got to lay hold of him and know him so well that he can get them through all that. And when Peter says yes, it's like the dominoes start falling. He goes to Cornelius' house. He preaches, I wish I could do this. I can't do this. I just haven't been there. God's going to have to help me. He preaches a two-second sermon. <laughs> and before he's even hardly finished with a couple of sentences, the Holy Spirit knocks him out of the way and pounces on the whole house. <laughs> I mean, it's only eight people. But it's eight people that have something unique in them. It's a little gatekeeping righteous household that hadn't been saved yet. It's Cornelius who becomes the first man in Scripture that he's saved and his whole house is saved. And he becomes the first fruit of the Gentiles. 
So the, the keys to the kingdom just finally gave Jesus a first fruit. And now, Antioch gets a commission from the Holy One. Separate Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them to do. Because the keys have been turned, the locks have been opened, the region is now ready for something. And now I can send a new level of anointing. And I'm going after the Gentiles. And if you look at every bit of Paul's journeys, this is what you'll find. He meets someone. He comes into a divine connection with them. Barnabas is the first one that we see. Barnabas is from a different place. But because he comes into a divine connection with Barnabas, the Lord takes him to Antioch. And he sits in the gate with this divine connection. And he starts becoming what he's supposed to be. And then they get sent out together, and they meet a few others along the way, and those others that became divine connections open up another city and another nation, and it goes on and on and on. If you trace all of the names in Paul's letters, that you will find most of them he met at one place, and they were from another. But when he came into divine connection with them, God then opened up his apostolic grace and sent him to the place that they represented. So Timothy's a good example of that. Timothy's father is a Greek. And Timothy has a connection with Jews and with Greeks. And he would like to be holy, he would like to be a priest, and his mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures, but everyone that was Jewish that knew him, probably even his mother and his grandmother said, son, I know you want to be, you know, serving God. But your daddy was a Greek. You can't be a priest. You, you, you can't do it. The Jews won't let you. But God said, wait a minute. I'll, I'll send him that. <laughs> and he'll come into relationship with it. And once he comes into relationship with him, Paul says, I can't call unclean what God has called clean. You're holy. There's no one like you that I've seen. And before the guy's in his 20s, He's ordaining elders over cities throughout the Gentile world. Isn't that a fascinating thing? Just look at the cities and look at the names that Paul represents in his letters and you'll see divine connecting and gatekeeping on a really high level. Another fascinating spot is when Paul wanted to go to Asia and the Holy Spirit says, no, can't go to Asia. It's one of those stories that sometimes we leave it that in our heads we think, well, you know, the Lord didn't want Asia. That's not true. The Lord gave him a dream, and in the dream he sees a Macedonian who says, come over and help us. He sees an actual person in his dream. So he believes that's from the Holy Spirit. He gets on the boat. He goes to Macedonia. He goes to the most prominent city in Macedonia. He finds Lydia, and then he finds her household. And I'm absolutely convinced he met the guy in his dream, who was a gatekeeper, because God wanted him to go through that city in Macedonia, because it was a spiritual gate to unlock all of Asia. And once he got a household and began to vote the church in that city, then the Lord said, all right, now you can go to Asia. And in a short, his next letter says, all of Asia has heard the gospel. It's amazing. You know, it's, it, it, the unlocking of the gates and the divine connecting that God orchestrates cause whole regions to come to a new place with God. And so if we can connect this principle with the anointing that God sends, 
It's absolutely phenomenal what will happen in the earth. So I commend you for being gatekeepers. I commend you for having the heart of God. And my prayer for you is that God will give you wisdom to stand in the gate with his heart. If you want that, let's pray. Any questions? Yeah. Quick question. I actually believe this with my wife, but um, this is Jesus. I'm really fascinated. I kept being reminded of Jonah. Because Jonah, I'm like, Jonah must have been a gatekeeper. But I, story, I believe he was. I, his story didn't turn out quite as well, at least for him personally. At least what we read. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious what, what your take on Jonah is. You can summarize it in a couple sentences. All right. Good question. Uh, Jonah is living out of the prophecy. He goes into the valley of the well. And the word says it's a prophetic act that reveals how Jesus right. goes into those in captivity and delivers it. Jonah's heart was messed up. He didn't right. want the, them to get saved. But in the end, he obeys. Okay. He obeys the unlocking of mercy. And God says to him, you know, Jonah, you don't have the right heart for these people. And he could have repented and then told But he doesn't. He runs away, goes to the, the whale thing or the big fish thing, and then gets spit out on the right beach in front of the right city. If you look at Nineveh as a gay city, God understood something about it that Jonah didn't. And God orchestrates a massive level of the releasing of his mercy towards a city that deserved to be judged and harshly judged. And he's got a guy that is locked up in his heart, but the process of what happened, because he's a prophet, he walks this out in a little different way. So you've got to look at that story not just as he needed to repent before he got to Nineveh, but his life became the prophecy. And so everything that God does with him, even in his disobedience, is prophesying a process that has to happen to give mercy release. He's got to have people that are willing to throw him out of the boat. He's got to have people that uh, recognize that whatever this is that's happening to us, God's the one doing it, and they cast lots and figure out, you're the one, you're the prophet. Again, it is a gatekeeping thing. So they realize whatever you're letting in your heart, it's affecting all of us. You know, when they chose to throw him out of the boat, they weren't trying to kill him. They were casting him back into the hands of God, you know, who then could only take him or rescue him. It's a little different understanding because they could have killed him and then thrown him over. But by throwing them over, they're saying, God that rules the heavens and rules the storm that's going on, if he sent this guy, if he's a prophet, we're going to put him back in his hands. Right? And by putting him back in his hands, God deals with his heart in the belly of the west. Right? So I promise you, by the time he gets spit out of the beach, he's got a little bit different heart. How do you know heart confirmed and what is your Women are some of the most fascinating gatekeepers, even if it's not a spiritual anointing in life, because the womb is one of the most, most phenomenal gates on the earth. Children come forth from the womb. If you look at that as a gate, it's a, ma- a massive level of uh, linking with this principle that every woman has the right to do in childbirth. 
But I also believe that uh, in the kingdom of God, I don't view male and female the same way many do. Uh, I think that we are all supposed to be the bride of Jesus, and that he's our Lord. And you're just as called as I am, as long as you're doing what he created you to do. I think that you have to lay hold of him and hear him on that. Um, we sometimes put a reproach on women just like we put a reproach on the lame man. You know? But because you're a woman, you can't do this, you can't do that. I'm careful with that. Uh, I know that there's some issues with that that some people would argue and say, well, no, that's not right, that women shouldn't be doing this. If that's what you believe or if that's what everybody that you're related to believes, I'm not going to try to change your opinion on that. But I say, you've got to hear God on this. You know, you've got to hear God on this. Uh, one of the most uh, phenomenal gatekeepers that I know is a lady named Dorothy Lee that lives in Oakland, California. And she is a Chinese lady, and she has a phenomenal level of gatekeeping. But she heard that from the Lord, and then she had to figure it out over about 12, 13, 14 years, uh, just walking out things. When you look at her history, her father was the first Chinese to be allowed to have a business in California. He was the first man to break out of the slavery of the railroads and become a shopkeeper and lift the favor of the city to allow him to have a business. And now many Chinese have businesses all over California. And that family line has opened up a spiritual gate that is phenomenally blessing Asia right now from Oakland, California. So I think women can be gatekeepers. I think women have just as much right to be gatekeepers as men do. Absolutely, Rahab was a gatekeeper. You know, and it's just not really a male or female thing. It's a heart thing. <clears throat> but first, the way I heard it is it came as a prophetic word to me. Jesus just said it to me. Some people I know didn't hear it. I said, Lord, but they just have a sense of place where they feel married to a certain place and God has given them a love for it and, and they're compelled to stay there. And they embrace the city in a way that has the nature of this principle. Many women are prone to have God's heart sometimes for a people or for a place just because they're sometimes more sensitive to things. And so I find that they're very highly qualified with their sensitivity often to lay hold of this principle. But as far as you as an individual, uh, I can't say yay or nay, you just have to ask Daddy God. Uh, if you suspect that you are, one of the ways you can find, you can test that a little bit is you can look at your life uh, since you've known Jesus and see if sometimes when you repented or sometimes when you figured something out and got a revelation from the Lord and began to walk in it, just see if it started affecting everyone around you. And that's sometimes one of the signs that you've got this anointing flowing out of your life. God starts causing others to get what you got. Or he starts freeing others up because you repented for something. It's not always by you preaching to it. It's just a mystery. You start watching. People start talking about the thing that you've been dealing with with God and got victory. I can repent for something. My wife can walk something out, figure out a principle, start walking in it. And within months, it's almost all over America. And yet, we're not necessarily preaching it all over America. God starts unlocking it and releasing it to the nation, and many start hearing it, but we'll often again and again find ourselves 
being the first fruit. We just are the first ones we ever meet to, to get that. And when we get it, it just becomes something that he proliferates. So if that kind of sign is going on, it's there. Get in the scriptures, find the women, find the people that God mentions. Uh, Mary's a gatekeeper. She's a virgin that opens up to the Most High for whatever he wants. Uh, <coughs> her um, cousin is a gatekeeper who brings a prophet in that proclaims the kingdom. Rahab certainly a gatekeeper. Now, um, the Lydia, who's a seller of purple, invites the apostles to her house and opens up the city. The woman at the well that Jesus talked to that had some problems with her past, but once she sees Jesus, she goes and tells the whole city, and they listen to her, and they come out and, and meet him. That's the gatekeeper process. There's lots of examples of women in it. Sometimes the way you can tell is just obey the Lord, whatever he tells you to do. And whatever he's telling you to do, if that principle is in you, the evidence of it will be clear somewhere down the road. Right, bless you, brother. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. See you guys. Any other questions? Okay. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking about, like, presidents and governments over states. Like, what if there's things within that have changed since they have, you know, that position and uh, how does that affect our ability to, I mean, does that affect, can that still, you know, that still affect us? Yeah. And can we just counteract that even if they don't, you know, it's not dealt with something inside them or something? Well. But then again, I'm, my mind's going right back to what you've shown. Mm-hmm. You're teaching, it's like, it, it's true, it's going back, you know, I've been since I've been listening. What I'm catching is, is the weight of responsibility upon us. It's, it's all about our heart. Because I'm not just thinking because it, it came back to me. It's like, what about you, church? What, what is it in you? That's up there. Let me answer your question this way. Um, George Washington became president of the United States and did not want that office. He was the only one among... Um, the leaders of the moment during that day, that all of them were in a consensus that he was the only one that would take that office and because he didn't want it was the reason they wanted them to have it. So they believed that he would conduct himself as a true servant to the nation, not as a tyrant. That's what they were after. Part of the reason why he did that well is because the heart of the people was looking for God to be their ruler. And they had overthrown an unrighteous tyrant, not out of rebellion, but for freedom, in order to connect again with God. And God gives us leaders that reflect our own heart. So he gave this nation that wanted God to rule over them and wanted men to serve, not tyrants over them. He gave them a leader that reflected the heart of the nation at that time come up to our day. Bill Clinton might be an example of a guy that a whole bunch of righteous people in the country was pretty mad at and didn't like a lot of things about his life. But what if you understand the ways of God in this way, that he was a reflection of the heart of America? The sins that became public, the things that happened in his administration was in many of us. And so God chooses our leader 
because he's a reflection of us. And if we don't like what we see, we might gripe at his sin and never look at ourselves in the mirror and say he's a reflection of us, isn't he, Lord? Especially of the righteous. If you look at many of the things that happen in ministries around that same administration, there's a lot of big ministries, there's a lot of well-known ministers who fell, and in that same time period, what came out about them was the same kind of stuff that came out in our president. So was he a reflection uh, that defiled us, or was our defilement something that tripped up our president? I think it's the latter. As it goes with the righteous, so does it go with the nation. There's a scripture that says if the righteous rule, the city is exalted. You can't rule a city if you're not ruling over your own heart. So if we're the tail and not the head, if we're struggling in our lives and in ungodly, unrighteous, unregenerate men and running everything, it's because they might be more qualified than we are if we really looked at our hearts. But we judge by the outer appearance sometimes. We judge by what we hear in our ears. We judge by what we see in our eyes. We don't judge by the heart. And therefore, we often look at ourselves as righteous and look at somebody else as messing up. But in leadership, especially in this country, I can tell you God has done for this nation very much what he's done for Israel. Israel has always had a leader that reflected their heart, even to this day. And that hadn't always been good. And this nation, if you look at the presidents of this nation, I absolutely believe we've always had a leader that reflected the condition of the heart of this nation at that time. And that hadn't always been good. So it starts with the righteous, and as we cry out to the Lord, and we um, uh, walk pure and holy, then God starts unraveling all kinds of levels of administration. And we come to the gate, we begin to decree what God is decreeing. God starts overthrowing anything that is contrary to his heart, and lifting up the righteous to replace it. That makes sense? If you look at this city, if you look at the administration and the leadership of this city, uh, we could just take some Christians and run them for the political office, or we can come to the gate and clean our own hearts up, bring a massive new level of repentance for all of the sins that we see in the city, including what we know is in us, and get that out at the gate. And then, once you've cleaned up the heart, circumcised the heart, stand up instead of kneeling down and weeping. Stand up in the authority of a door that's been set back in its place and make decrees that have come out of the heart of God to what he wants for the city. And what do you decree? Not, you sinners, get out of here. What you decree is, oh God, this city belongs to you. God, this land is yours and everything in it. God, the silver and the gold are yours. Come and judge this city. And not, judgment is not, in that sense, come and destroy it. Judgment is come and sit down in our city as king. And when he sits down as king, which we can decree at the gate, then righteousness is on one pillar and justice is on the other. That's what his kingship does. So he starts bringing those two things into every affair of the community. 
And master transformation comes through the gates if we will conduct ourselves properly. You, you, can, you can absolutely transform a city from a place like this if you understand the principle of it. Even like on a personal level, it talks about like um, if a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he'll even make his enemy be at peace with him. Mm-hmm. He's saying principle. Like, so, because uh, I, I just try to, I wonder, like, cause there's many times that I remember at work, my attitude was probably the reflection of what, of what I was seeing, the way I was being treated, because my attitude was just like, they were doing it when I when I got right the Lord and, and humbled myself and dealt in the right and kept my right things changed but whenever I when things didn't change it just, just kept going in a circle the same pattern like shoot man it must be they must not be it must be you know me so it's like uh, even then on a small level like <laughs> let me give you a reminder of something I said earlier because we talked for about a while so I, I want to make sure you catch this and it kind of answers you what you're pondering. Uh, when I told you about um, El Paso, the guy who hated had to bless. Okay. What would happen if you guys as gatekeepers got a hold of the heart of God and then stood in the gate to God give us an anointing to bless this city? And, and think about this. In Numbers 2, it says, let's read it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of the Nazarite to separate himself from the Lord, and then it goes into some details. So this whole passage starts out with consecration. If somebody decides to consecrate themselves for me, this is going on. I, I absolutely believe this is something that you were talking about, this passage. God's got you and your wife on it already. You know, he's consecrated. It's not like, you know, drinking a glass of wine is going to destroy the earth, but God asks something of you because he's going after this authority that comes from this kind of consecration. It's not about what he asks you to give up. It's about the heart that has to come to a new place of holiness. And God is not really saying, this is bad for you. He's saying, I need you to consecrate yourself on a level that is not normal for every person, but for you, I must have this because it takes you to a place with me. And, and you got to be careful with this because we can get really radical about, you know, don't do this or do that or this is wrong. And it's not necessarily wrong, but we think it is if we're religious. And you're not religious. That's been the pattern of your life. So if we've got to say to you, don't drink wine, you know, don't do some things. It's a consecration thing. It's not about the cup. You know, it's not about the drink. It's about your heart understanding a deep level of consecration. So you're already into this. If you're into this, he's probably doing it in the whole body. You know, not necessarily with the same things he's asking them to give up, but it's like, what is it that's keeping you from really being holy? It may be something else in one of them, and it's that in you. But everything we spoke or you spoke about today, all have the very same thing. Right. But the consecrating of the heart, the Lord's doing something in you that needs to be in the foundation of your life, and that imparts to the foundation of the corporate gate as a body. So you go to the rest of this. Why did he want that? 
Why was he saying? I, I've got to do something with this Israel to get this Nazarite thing out of some of them. He didn't require it of everybody. He basically said, speak to the children of Israel. Whenever a man or woman consecrates himself, you know, it's a different thing. And instead of God saying, look, this is a law, don't do it. He's saying, I see something in your heart. You're saying to me, I want to be holy. So I'm going to give you a couple of little changes. Let's see how you do with that. And it's your heart saying, I'm willing to pay the price to be deeply, deeply holy with God. And you're, you're doing it. You're on track. And, and I know that must be imparting to the whole body in and in maybe in other ways with, with, the, uh, with the issues or with the things that they're doing. But it's holiness imparting to the, from the foundation. And you go to the rest of this, it's separating yourself to the Lord. It's choosing things that are clean instead of unclean. So God is taking the whole nation here and he's causing the precious to be separated from the vile. And he's bringing a remnant in Israel to a place where this deep consecration goes on so that they can tell that it's not really about the law. It's about the heart. That's what the Nazarites were able to impart. Is instead of do's and don'ts and ordinances and laws, it was choosing not to do things that were valid and legal and okay because I would rather be like Jesus and for some reason this is kind of keeping me from being like him. Not because it's wrong for the nation, but because it's wrong for me. You know? And so it, it brings the whole nation to a new place. And then because they were willing to go through that, you come down to the latter part of Scripture, and this is the last part of it. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses again, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way that you are to bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now think about this. What does it mean to be kept by the Lord? What does it mean to see his face? You ever seen his face? You know why we haven't seen his face very often? Because we've been deprived of this blessing. It's that simple. If a priest, if someone that knows him intimately, gives this blessing, this is what God says he would do. So, you shall put my name on the children of Israel, and then I will surely bless them. He said, if you do this, if you're willing to speak it, I'll go after them and do it. <clears throat> so I experimented. You know, I like that. Gatekeeper, I got that right. <laughs> I'm going to experiment with it. have a friend named Val. Her father was dying of cancer. He was not saved. He didn't want to get saved. He cussed her out every time she tried to witness to him. He loved her, but he just did not want to talk about religious things. And now he's dying. He's on a deathbed. He's been told he's got two or three days to live. And she's standing there with tears coming down her eyes saying, Daddy, please, please get your heart right with God before you die. And he's saying, blankety, blank, 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 the other room, I do not want to talk about that stuff. 
So she comes to my house, talks to my wife and I, says, would y'all pray with me? My daddy is dying, and he won't get saved. I don't want him to go to hell. So I said, well, gee, that's a big one. He's got two or three days to, to live. We've got two choices. We could go lay hands on him and pray that God heals him, or we could get him saved or both. But I'm not sure what the Lord wants to do. So, Val, we love you. My wife and I are going to go pray, and then we'll call him back in a little while. So we went down to our closet, we prayed, and said, Lord, what do you want to do? He said, he's going to die. All right. That bugs me. <laughs> he says, tell her to bless him. And tell her to ask him to bless her. So I've been studying this verse a little bit, so I called Val. Val, come over to the house right now. She only lived a few blocks away. She was there in five minutes. I said, sit down, let me show you this scripture. So we've talked about it. He said, Val, go ask your dad if he will bless you. She goes, he won't do that. Every time I talk about the Bible, every time I talk about God, he, he starts cussing me out. I said, I know. But he's got an inheritance, doesn't he? Yes. He's got a house. He's got a couple of houses. He's got some cars. He's got some assets, right? Yes. Go tell him that you don't care about all that stuff. That the last request that you have to him as a daughter is for him to give you his blessing. And he's going to say to you, I don't know how to do that. And you're going to say, Dad, I'm going to make it real easy on you. I'm just going to read this scripture and you just say, okay. So she, she said, he won't do that. I said, well, go try it. And if he does it, or if he doesn't do it, uh, that's up to the Lord. But you do have the right to bless him. So even if he's cursing you to your face, stretch your hands out towards him and speak that verse over him before he dies. Because God said in this verse, he will surely bless them. And I don't know what that means, but let's see. <laughs> so she does. She tells him, tells him. She said, Daddy, I don't want your house. I don't want your cars. I don't want the money in your bank. You can give all that to my brothers and sisters. I only want one thing for you, and do not hold this back from me. She says, Daddy, I love you. You know I love you. I know you love me. Please give me this final request before you die, and I'll let you die in peace. He says, okay, what do you want? She says, I want you to bless me. I want a father's blessing on my head before you die. He says, I don't know how to do that. That was his exact words. So she says, Daddy, she kneeled down on knees. She says, it's real easy. She picks up his hands and she puts his hands on her head. And she says, just say this, Daddy. May the Lord bless you. Tears start streaming down his eyes. His hands start shaking. And he says, may the Lord bless you. She says, and keep you. And keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. He repeats her verbatim. And as soon as she says, Amen, he says, he doesn't even say Amen, he just reaches over for the remote, he turns the TV on and starts watching the football game. And she says, Daddy, we're not quite done yet. Um, please, don't turn the football game on. Just, just, you can leave it on, just turn it down a little bit. You know? He goes, okay, what else we got to do? She says, Daddy, my final request before you die is let me bless you. 
She goes, I don't know. I don't want to get saved. She goes, I know. I'm not going to preach to you. I'm just going to say the same thing that you just said over me. It made you cry, Dad. I mean, you know it's you know it's valuable. He goes, Well, okay, do it. Come on, hurry up, I want to watch the game. <laughs> so she puts her hands on his head. She does the same thing. Says, All right, Daddy. Good night. Kisses him. Goes home. He dies. Two thirty a.m. that morning. That was about eleven o'clock. The last thing, last I mean, last thing she did, and so she gets the phone call in the middle of the night. You need to come to the hospital. Your dad's just passed. And instead of going to the hospital, she calls me in utter hysterics. Tim, I don't think he got saved. Maybe I could have done more that month. No, I had. <laughs> he was weeping. That's the value you promised him you wouldn't do that. So I just said, look, quiet down. Sober up. Listen. I said, go get in your closet. Get on your face. And ask Jesus what it means to be kept by him. So I swear to you, this is what she's told me. About 20 minutes later, she calls my wife out again, and she's hysterical. Only this time, she's not weeping. She's sleeping. She's jumping. She's shouting. You can hear it. We not, I know why. She must have heard something good. She, I mean, I've got to hold the phone out here like this, because she's just screaming through the phone. Finally, she gets quiet and says, Dad, what happened? Just come on over to the house. Tell us what happened. She comes over. She goes, you won't. She's a 10. She's shaking. She's just shaking. Her face is white. She's just absolutely undone. And I'm like, what has happened to you? He goes, Jesus, Jesus. He came into my closet. He stood in front of me. I saw him face to face. And he said to me, Don't worry, God. Your father is sitting next to me. He says, I stopped time and space at that moment that he was breathing out his last breath so that before his death came, he saw my face. And he says, you know, nobody can look at me and live. So he lost what he was holding on to, and he's got me instead. <laughs> I'm keeping him. <laughs> now, you know, I still think that's a legitimate salvation, because he became a believer, but it, he took, it took a face-to-face for him to say yes. <laughs> and then I re-looked at this verse, and I said, my God, my God. <laughs> Like, uh, what have we been missing here? So what would happen if gatekeepers spoke that kind of blessing over every man, woman, and child in their city? Well, my list is about a million plus. But we're doing it. I did this, my wife and I did this over every single person in our household that we were related to. And within that two-year period, all but one has been saved. And, and he's close. They haven't all seen Jesus, but they've all had some kind of encounter where he began pursuing them. And he set up something so that they ended up um, changing some things in their life. 
And then they come to us and let us know, and we were almost always the first one in the family that they let know that they had gotten saved. And we, we did not leave most of them to the Lord. We just spoke that blessing. Now it got real fun when I looked at some of the biggest rascals in Oklahoma City who, like this attorney, and guys that were just defiling the city, and I thought, what would happen to them if I went and asked them if I could bless them? And I found that when you do that scripture to somebody that doesn't know the Lord, it has a profound effect on their heart. Because the presence of God comes every time. And I haven't found one person yet who has said, no, I don't want you to bless me. I just haven't found one yet. Especially children. I've done that a few times with kids, and it affects their heart so much that within the next time I see them, they will beg me to bless them again. There's something that their spirit knows is in there, and they don't even understand it fully, but they absolutely know something. I felt something when you said that. Next time you said, please, give me a blessing again. So this is the way I do it with my wife. At least once a week, I call her over to myself. We're sitting eating something. We go somewhere. Sometimes we have a date. Sometimes we're just sitting at the living room table. And I pull a chair up close to me. I get about this close to, to her face. I put my hands on her cheeks. And I say, I only have eyes for you. There's no one else on this earth that has captured my heart like you. You're the treasure of my life. You're, you're the apple of my eye. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And my face is this close every time I say it. And I've never said that stuff to her without her bawling before I'm done. It has brought her to a level of intimacy with me that I can't even begin to explain to her. And then we turn around, we speak that kind of blessing over our children. We don't do it religiously, but I do it fairly often. And I absolutely have a phenomenal blast doing it for people that don't know the Lord. <laughs> and I think it's one of the clues to transforming a city. So I love to do it. Uh, now I'm going to one more scripture, and I want, then I'll close with this. I want you to mark down this verse, and y'all, y'all read it and pray it. I'm not going to turn the Bible there, but it's Jeremiah 16, 16. It says, uh, after these things, talking about Babylon, uh, taking them into captivity. It says, after all of that, I will call for many fishermen. And then, I will call for many hunters. And they will hunt them in all of the rocks, under the rocks and in all of the caves and find them. Jesus fulfilled that that prophecy that Jeremiah gave when he stood at Capernaum and said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He fulfilled the first half of that prophecy. He started the process of fishing. And he commissioned the apostolic anointing to start fishing. This year, we're about to hear a decree come out from the Lord. Yeah, I think he's already saying it. And he's beginning to speak, especially to the apostolic and the gatekeepers, it's time to start hunting. Now, what's the difference between fishing and hunting? When you're fishing, you just throw a net in and you catch a few. But there's still a lot of fish in the lake that we haven't caught yet. But when you hunt, you plan a hunt. You learn all the territory. 
You know what the animal's territory is. You learn his ways. You see his path. You know what's going on. You become educated into the nature of what you're going to hunt. And we're not hunting to kill something, just as the early church didn't fish to uh, make slaves. They fished to turn them into sheep. We're supposed to hunt to turn them into the bride. The first hunter that you see is Elias. I mean, not Elias, it's Abraham's servant, who he said, you go find me a wife for my son, and the angel of the Lord will go ahead of you and give you good success. And he goes with this phenomenal level of God orchestrating some really unusual things to prove to him, to prove to a family that didn't know him, to prove to a young lady that this thing was of God. And then she says, I'll go with him and I'll marry this man I've never met and never seen because God's orchestrating this. That's a hunter that captured the bride. <coughs> if we connect a commissioning to hunt with the understanding of blessing and the authority of gatekeeping, I think God's going to give us the rascals or the other prominent people in the city, not prominent in the sense that they're the richest or the most influential, but they're the ones that if we get them, they're like Cornelius, their heart will turn and will capture a whole area, a whole sphere of influence in the region that they control. And when they turn, just like the gatekeeping principle, everyone in their house or everyone in their industry will have a massive revival. So what would happen if we went to the movie models, if we went to the most prominent people in the business, if we went to people that have anointing for government, if we went to the administrators of the schools, if we went to people that are just well-known in the city, and they may not be the greatest folks, but they're well-known. And if, they, if we capture them and, and, and release something in them that makes them the bride that Jesus is looking for, then they start winning everyone that they know. It, it is an anointing, I think, that's going to release. And I'm saying that to you guys because I suspect that this consecrating your experience and, and the authority that he'll answer all of your questions on this principle. I wouldn't be speaking it to you in part if God wasn't going to add a whole lot more. So you'll figure this out. Don't, don't sweat. You'll get it. But when you figure it out, what are you going to do with it? Look at that scripture in Jeremiah and ask the Lord to, to tell you what he wants to do to commission the gatekeeping process to begin the hunt. Paul, I believe, was a hunter. The word says of Acts that before he became saved, he was going out looking for everyone that was out of the way because he wanted to kill them. That's a hunter. And the Lord commissions him into the apostolic. But he made this statement that a lot of people don't know what it means. I think it means this. The statement he made is, I was one born out of due season. Now I would submit to you that during the season that the Lord had commissioned the fishing, Paul started hunting, but he was premature. He wasn't premature in the sense that God didn't want him doing it at that moment. He was a first fruit because God was after the Gentiles. But he was a hunter, and he hunted with his apostolic anointing. And that kind of anointing, God really had destined to release in our day. So as a first fruit, he falls to the ground, he dies, he releases that anointing. And then the Lord let the fishing season run its course, 
and now he's ready to decree, I need some hunters. Come and follow me and I'll make you a hunter of men. Go out and find my bride. Does that make sense? So I think there's an apostolic anointing coming to this house. And in that anointing, I think the gatekeeping and the consecrating of your heart like the Nazarites is going to be a massive impartation that brings you to a place where you're going to be able to start commission and proclaim and decree from the gate a call for the hunters. And when that begins to be decreed out of the gate, I'm not saying that you might go out and do the hunt in a way that everybody sees, but you'll probably have a part in that. But if you just decree it from the gate, God will begin to release it just like he released Paul. And he'll start going after uh, our cities in ways we've never seen. Yeah. Uh, what you're talking about hunting sounds very strategic. It is. We fish with tools, we hunt with weapons. And you can hunt to kill, or you can hunt to capture. But you've got to think strategically to be able to do that. We're hunting for a guy named Osama bin Laden right now. And there's a whole lot of technology and there's a whole lot of military strategy at play in several nations just to capture one man. What if, if, what if that is a prophetic sign of what God would like his church to do? What if we put that kind of energy into capturing those that aren't saved yet but God is calling to the apostolic? Somebody prayed for Paul when he was a murderer. Somebody believed God that that guy that had determined with zeal to kill everybody of the way, somebody believed God that he was still savable. Whoever prayed that got his prayers out. We have got to look at the people that we think, by the outer appearance, it doesn't look like they're ever going to turn. We've got to believe that God can get face to face with I think that someone that prayed for Paul prayed number six because that's how he got saved. Jesus just came and said, hey, here I am. And the first thing out of his mouth when he's standing in the glory looking at the face is, who are you, Lord? He even called him Lord. That's just, you know, it's, it's not a hard thing to get people to turn when they get a face to face. We just never connected that blessing with evangelism. And we certainly haven't connected it with the commissioning of the apostolic. But Paul said in another one of his letters, Am I not apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus? <laughs> so he got the answer to that blessing. I would submit to you that the, the reason why we see the apostolic a little messed up in America right now and the reason why we see the prophetic a little bit of a mixture, and the reason why we see evangelism not that successful, is because all of those offices require a face-to-face -face with Jesus. And we've not seen enough of the people with those graces come to a place in their life where they've had their face-to-face. -face. But if they start giving it, they'll start giving it away. And I think God will start doing it even for the lost. Well, good, good. Because I already encouraging word. You know, you know when we grow up, we'll outreach. We're going to ask we give them an encouraging word. We'll give them an encouraging word. And we're going to get that. And may I do a blessing on you. So, see you out.
right, well, everybody stand up. Stick your hands out and get ready for a gift. Father, I come to you right now. Even the ones that had to leave already, I ask you to include them in this. Their heart is here, I know. They're very, they're very um, received in one accord with the heart here. So, Lord, I just ask you to honor this prayer, honor this blessing. I stand in obedience to you as one that you have commissioned to call. I stand as one that you have blessed. Lord, you've shown me your face. And therefore, I say to you, may you bless them. May you cause your face to shine upon them. May you keep them. May you be gracious to them. Lord, lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. And I know the definition of that peace is to put their feet on the neck of your enemies. So Lord, I pray that you would bring them into rest. Let the blessing of the Lord bring them into a place of rest and consecration and holiness. And then let that blessing release into their DNA a full measure of, of the activation of their gifts and their callings and their graces. Make it hard for them to miss it, Lord. Make it hard for them to stumble. Just like Peter, make it impossible for them to not walk in that anointing when you're ready to do something with it. Go after their hearts like you went after Peter. And get them the strategy for the hunt. And I just decree out of this gate that you are standing in this city like you stood on the shores of the Galilee. And you are looking at men and looking at women and looking at children in this gate just like you looked at those fishermen. And I hear your voice saying to this city, Come and follow me, and I will make you hunters of my bride. And I pray, O oh God, that you would commission many from this gate. And just as there's a, there's a phenomenal connection from the activity in this gate in the natural way that connects with the earth and distributes uh, business and enterprise and creativity all over the earth, I pray now let your house capture that anointing and, and lay hold of the redemptive purposes of this territory. And let the anointing now come out of the righteous that would go and touch the nations in your ways. And Lord, let blessing come forth from their mouths. And, and I ask you to answer them just as you said in that scripture that when they do that, you will bless them and you will put your name on those that they bless. Lord, we commission them with that. We ask you to tell them the things that I don't understand and I don't know. I leave them with the bits and pieces. I pray that you finish the conversation in their hearts, that you settle every question that they have, that you activate their gifts, their callings, their anointing. Lord, I pray that in this blessing, you give them their birthright. You give them the blessing that you have intended for them, even as individuals, and you give them the full measure of their inheritance. And let them walk as holy men and women. Let them conduct themselves as the righteous of God. And let them transform this city for your glory by putting your name upon every man, woman, and child in this region. I don't know how you're going to have them do it. 
But I believe it's possible. And I believe you've been standing in the heavens waiting for some sons to hear you so that you could do this. So just like Rahab, before she knew that there was hope for her, you had your eye on her. I pray that you would look at this city and remember Rahab. I pray that you would look at those that don't know you and remember your mercy. And out of a city with the gift of mercy, I cry, oh mercy, oh God. Mercy, oh God. But let them have truth and mercy. And let them bind those things around their neck and embrace you as their Lord. And I say, Lord, I don't just want your mercy heart here. I want your kingship in this city. So if this city truly has a gift of mercy, let them embrace the king that rules with justice and mercy. And let your heart impart. So I just decree here that grace is in place. Now let unction begin to function. And I ask you to release the strategies and the anointings. And compel them to acts of obedience. That would make it hard for anyone in this city to not know you. And we just stretch our hands out. Lord, I take my shoes off here, just like Joshua. And I say, on the surface, this city looks defiled. But I say, you are calling it home. And I stretch out my hands to Santa Monica, and to Malibu, and to Venice. And I say, be holy. It's about your redemption. And Lord, we call holy what you call. Now sick them, Jesus. Sick them, Holy Ghost. Once you came as an angel of death and passed under the threshold of every household in Egypt and took the firstborn. Now I cry out to you to open the heavens over this gate and come as an angel of life, O oh God, and pass under the threshold of every house in this community and in the ones that are surrounded and come as the angel of life and show them your face. Put your blessing upon every man, woman, and child here. Let such a sign and a wonder come out of this gate that the earth will see and say, Surely the Lord is good. Surely His ways are past comprehended. Surely His love cannot be understood fully. Oh God, give them your name. And in the name of Jesus, we bless them. Now, Lord, it took me about 20 years just to figure out 
some of the stuff that I said tonight. And even that, I don't do it justice. I can only let it come out in bits and pieces, and there's lots of things that are hard to say with all of that. But I ask you for an anointing to come down upon all of these, that what it took you to show me in that two-decade period, let them get it in about a two-year period. Accelerate it with impartation and with your own presence. To bring these things to pass. It's your ways, Lord. It's your ways. So, Father, teach them your ways, not just your acts. And enable them to walk in these things on an accelerated scale. It's time to do it. I don't think this city deserves to have to wait 20 years for them to figure it out. So enable them with a special grace to walk in these things and to go beyond even what I know, Lord, and others that have come before them. And I release this now into your hands with great joy, O oh God, I ask you to set the heavens to dancing right now. And even before we see the fulfillment of this blessing, command your angels to dance and to begin to party. Because this city will be redeemed. Just as you stopped time and space for battle's part. Treat this city from this day as if this prayer and this blessing has already been answered. And accelerate these things for your glory. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Thank you for your patience. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it. You said a good job. Okay, now I can tell you that. Now the secret is the kingdom. You've written that in a book? I'm sorry. I just wanted, did you get that in a book, Tim? Or I have a tape, tape that I've made, but I've got it. Um, I've submitted it to some friends of mine, and we're refining one another. So I've not ready to release it yet. Um, it's, it's got all of that in it, but um, we may take it through one more cut before we release it. But Gary and I know... Um, that God's divinely connected us, so we're going to begin to communicate with one another. And you guys will have access to anything that we put out. Oh, down very awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, this is like a major download of so much. This whole guy lives close by, and he's got a lot of this stuff. He's, his whole family's got a real territorial anointing. And he understands a lot of this stuff, too, so I, I know that he's. Y'all will probably see him more than me, but you'll get to hear some good stuff out of him too. Tim, uh, are you just visiting, or I don't know, because you're not, you're not local, right? No, I'm local in the city.
Uh, yeah, I've just been here for about three weeks, and I'm going home Friday, but uh, we'll be back. How often do you come to Well, it's been about every year. Um, there's been a couple of times that it was longer spread than that, but we're trying to set that up. Um, the first time I came to Santa Monica was in 1990, and the Lord sent me back here almost once a year or every other year since then. Oh. And I've been decreeing from the sand down there some of these things for at least that long. Oh, so now I'm getting the benefit of meeting a lot of the people that God's assigned to the place that I've been. I've had this city on my heart for a long time. So it's fun to meet people that God has placed here that I know are answers to the prayers. I'm not the only one. I think the Lord's sent hundreds of people to this place and told them there's something special about this spot prayer. You guys are answers to those prayers. You know, a lot of people just say, oh, that's the city of sin. Oh, that's the Arctic America. Oh, that's, you know, Hollywood is evil. That's all, that's all over here. <laughs> Every time we're going to someone leaves house, yeah, that place is wicked. Thanks. <laughs> you don't. Well, the places that look like they're locked up the most almost always have a high level of escape keeping in them. And but they're also once we figure out the principles, they're also the easiest places to unlock. Yeah. So it's us that's been the problem more than it's been the wickedness out there. <laughs> but we're figuring it out. So take hope and just do your job and do whatever the Lord tells you, and it'll be all right. It'd be fun to have an evening like a fireside chat type evening where we could just kind of hang out and ask the questions and stuff. She did like Monday 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I, I look at divine connections, and there's a word that the Lord told me to attend to the divine connections in my life. And attend means to wait on, to serve, to give yourself to, to lay your life down for. And uh, I absolutely believe that that's a requirement. So. Um, that kind of thing, say it to the Lord and He'll facilitate it somehow. Well, we can do video conferencing. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's a lot easier to do things than it used to be. I've uh, I've gone through these principles with Ireland, with the UK, with Israel. And Ireland's had this massive change in the last couple of years, and Lord's just been orchestrating some phenomenal things. And I just get little bits and pieces that have helped them along. But almost all of that has happened just by communicating on the internet with some of the leaders there. And I have yet not made a trip to Ireland. But I now have an invitation from the President, from the Speaker of the Parliament, and from the head of the uh, IRA. Has, uh, most of the IRA guys have uh, gotten blasted by the Holy Ghost because a friend of mine um, just took the gospel to the pub. <laughs> and so a bunch of the people who used to be terrorists have just got waylaid by the Holy Ghost in the last few months. And, and all that's happened just by a little bit of communication that we've done through the internet. And as yet, I've not been tired, but I'm going to go. So it's possible to do it that way. Is there a keykeeper? A key? Yeah, the key. opposite of gatekeeping. Um, Someone who opens the gate or opens the doors. Yeah, I think so. 
I think there's um, dozens of uh, diversity in this principle that um, God tailors some uniqueness to it to some individuals in some places. Uh, I think there's certain angels that have um, uh, uh, that almost everything they do is always related to this principle. Okay, this is like